honor of today's episode. It's a beautiful podcast. Bum, bum, bum. And much as like... Except, you know, if that sounded too generic for you, it was I was trying to imitate uh, Beautiful Day by you 2 the band we're reviewing. Uh, sad that I didn't pick up on that. It really is. Yeah. Considering all things well, considered. Well, no, it sounded like so much other stuff that had come out recently. All headers and topics considering. <laughs> yes, all things considered even. Um, so yeah, there's my intro, to... Steve. Take it away yeah, before yeah, I yeah, drown yeah. in this. At least you didn't right. try to do Vertigo. That's true. That would have been a lot harder. Normally, yeah. one, you're the one talking about concerts. This week, I saw a concert. Actually, it was the last night. I saw Jamie Cullman concert. Okay. Probably, like, the number one foremost jazz musician. Jazz standard musician. Well, you, you mentioned know, him when we did, um... um the, the, chick? That thing! Chick Corea. There we go. Chick? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I told... Well, yeah, I may have mentioned him around that time. Definitely. Just because I was, I was interested in doing a jazz album at that time, and I'm still interested in doing more jazz albums, but of course those would be two very, very different directions. Chick Corea is kind of going on the more experimental style of things, or at least in Chick Corea's own, own way of doing so. But Jamie Cullum is, I think, accessible to a wider variety of people, just because his first two albums were very jazz-focused, but yet it had this little pop twang, and sort of this Brit-pop twang that brought a lot of people in. And then when he released Catching Tales in 2005, it was... It was it was strong. It was actually a big Christmas time album, I think, for that year. And after that, he hit a, a stride of popularity. He was able to release another very jazzy album in 2009 that was more jazzy than, than his usual stuff. And even it hit just as big because people were already latched on to his name. Mm-hmm. So he's a really amazing performer. He's, he's kind of short. Though. He's like five feet five tall. He's, he's kind of diminutive in the, in the jazz world. Because I noticed they tend to be pretty tall. You're not that tall either, Steve. I'm not five foot five. <laughs> True. I'm also over six foot, so everyone's short to me. Except for people that are taller than you. AKA the so, NBA. So, did anyone open for him? John's not that tall either. <laughs> yeah. No, John's really short. Oh. I'm taller than him. No, you're not. Yes, yeah, I am. No, you're like not. one inch shorter than me. No, I'm not. We're not having this argument I again. I slouch. Yes, they've had this argument That's before. it. We're pausing. We're measuring. Um, not really. Did anyone open for Jamie Cullum? Uh, no, it hits a, it hits a jazz club. Well, for a jazz oh, club, okay. very often it's just the, the set. The, the set. And okay. the set very often isn't with him and musicians that he's typically worked with. Because the way jazz people work is they just hand off the lead sheets and then they're professional enough that they can just follow the lead sheet. They get pretty much one quick rehearsal that day. They did it at 2 p.m., and then they go on stage for two times that night. It's a very impressive routine. Cool. He jumped on top of the piano and then jumped off of it. Considering the size of this jazz club, that could have been very precarious, but no one got hurt. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed the show. That and he's kind of short, so that works too. (laughs) Sounds like you enjoyed the show. Yes, I did. I managed to get a couple signatures too. Oh, great. Cool. It's always nice when you can do that. I don't know. I I feel like, though, there are appropriate times to go up to artists and others when there are not. Like, I see a lot of people harassing people at, like, restaurants, and that drives me bonkers. Like, the dude's eating dinner. Leave him alone. Oh, yeah. Well, this but, is the kind of situation where no, of course, it, it, it was concert. more of the... the uh, the, the word of mouth that went around being like he's he, he's gonna be signing yeah, so no, just sure. a bunch of people like it was probably about like 20 people but it had thinned down from like 40 people so like they kicked us out of the upstairs down to the downstairs and then kicked us from the downstairs to the outdoor area where it's like he has to leave sometime yeah. definitely not no, the way to course. go about it but I, it, no, it was you know he got his, he got his rest autograph sessions after a show though are you know make sense and are quite typical although when I went to see Frontalot and Dr. Awkward as I was talking about before 
I focused more on just chatting with them because, well, A, I have a brand to promote, and mostly B, I just, I've made that connection with a lot of those artists before, so I just want to tell them how good the new record was or whatever. Um, but anyway, um, I think this is a good point to jump on to our next point of conversation, which I will awkwardly do now because apparently that's my thing this week. Um, good, good point to point. It's, it's, it's not this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to take a moment to personally thank Heather for reaching out to us on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Wildflower Fever. Um, she reached out to us about our most recent episode before this one that we're actually recording, Time Paradox, about My Brightest Diamond. Um, she had let us know that uh, listening to My Brightest Diamond always makes her feel very analytical. She was looking forward to checking out our St. Vincent episode as well. Um, so thank you for reaching out. She also sent us a poem based on one of My Brightest Diamond's tracks, which we were trying to surmise what it meant, but apparently it's based on an actual poem. Yeah, like, it's The Apparition, which I believe was the last track on yes. that album. And, and she um, sent us this to share with us, so now we will share with you. Very well. Uh, the poem is by Mallarmé, uh, translated by Roger Fry, because Mallarmé is apparently one of the foremost uh, contemporary French contemporary artists in uh, as of 19th century, and obviously they'll to be translated, so... If there's any lapse in, in true poetic fluidity, trans translation will be why. The moon was saddening, seraphim in tears, dreaming bow in hand in a calm of vaporous flowers were drawing from dying violins, white sobs gliding down blue corollas. It was the blessed day of your first kiss. My dreaming loving to torment me was drinking deep of the perfume of sadness that even without regret and deception is left, by the gathering of the dream in the heart which has gathered it. I wandered then, my eyes on the worn pavement, when with the sun in your hair and in the street in the evening, you in laughter appeared to me, and I thought I saw the fairy with her cap of brightness, who once on the beauty sleeps of my spoiled childhood passed, letting always her half-closed hands snow down white bouquets of perfumed stars. I actually see the connection between that and the song pretty strong. Well, yeah, I mean, it's clearly the song was definitely inspired by this poem, but it's just... It's an it, adaptation, yeah. Well, but it's, what's interesting to me about the poem is, I mean, poetry is a very succinct and specific thing, which I, I used to write, not a lot of, but, like, language is really important to poetry. So for it to still mostly make sense and be cohesive in a different language is a huge thing. That because, we owe to Roger Fry. Yeah. That, it's actually, I find that to be one of the most challenging things, to some extent even more challenging than the poet themselves, is the translator, because they have to carry over this, this idea that wasn't theirs and make it just as presentable to yeah. another language. I mean, it, it takes intuition for that. Well, that's why there's a, several forms of poetry that are unique unto the language that it originated in. Um, most specifically the haiku for all the, the things you could do with the haiku in English uh, the original uh, uh, Japanese ideas are so much more impactful well just sure. because the, the range of, of uh, single syllabolic Japanese words tend to be much more vast than in English yeah um, impactful that is to say more than our you know conjunctions and things like that which are almost in passing yeah that and the fact that we have conjunctions. I always upset. I'm upset whenever. But we you know, know their functions. 
oh, when I see a the conjunction. Reference. <laughs> um, so, Heather, thank you for pointing that out to us. We had missed that in the research, so we Indeed. always appreciate that. Um, thank you for checking out Crash Course Podcast in general. I hope there's other good stuff we can offer you in yep. our backlogs. And feel free to shoot us an email or a, twit or a tweet at us a album recommendation you have. We try to stick towards the more modern stuff, but if you have something that you'd like us to review in the coming weeks, please let us know. Um, moving on to this week's album. Um, so I picked this as I explained a bit at the end of last week's podcast because Apple partnered with a band this time around for their new iPhone release, and it was U2, a pretty well-known band. And their partnership was they released the album to everyone who has an iTunes account for free, 100% for free. They didn't just release the album. They made everyone take the album for well, everybody who has an iTunes to account. To be fair... That was an overreaction. Now with the cloud and everything else, nothing auto-downloads unless you have it set as such. Otherwise, you had to choose to download the record, like I did, which I did. Um, but you weren't forced to download it. But anyway, um, so I wanted to do this record for that reason alone because we had it. We were given a brand new U2 record. Why not? Also, it's you, it's U2. You can't really deny the impact of U2 on rock music. They've been around a long time. Bono and the Edge have been influential in many places, including music. Um, and I've been a fan of theirs for a very long time. I mean, from the first time I heard Sunday Bloody Sunday, which hooked me immediately. First track, first album. <laughs> first track, first album. First hit. From to my favorite track, Mysterious Ways, which was once U2 hit the 80s, they took this weird turn, but they had a lot of fun with their music videos. And that song, this... This idealized version of the perfect, beautiful, sensual woman expressed in this kind of fun and groovy kind of way. It was very intriguing and very, you know, interesting. And I enjoy what they did musically, considering the fact that they came from this almost almost punk-driven sound that was... It, it was raw in the sense that, that punk is raw, but then it also had this little new wave twang to it. And out of that seemed to come this post-rock sound where it was a lot more atmospheric than it was all-out rock. Still had that pop framework, but it, that they were doing radically different things with that pop framework considering the time. Yeah. And all throughout the 80s, that was just that was wildly popular. And they moved through into the 90s and the early 2000s and they took a long break between the, the early 90s and the 2000s and when they came back they had, um, I'm blanking on the name, but it was of course most well known for Beautiful Day, which was a huge, huge hit. It was the return of U2. They took a more pop mainstream. That or Vertigo. It's hard or to Vertigo. say which one was the one that Well, they were on back. separate al albums. Yeah, but both were the quote resurgences, yeah. depending but, on who you ask. But the thing with U2 is that this return to form was more pop. They were always pop influenced, but they chose to continue to be influenced by the pop that was out at the time. And so the sound took a more arena rock, killer style, and even more so beyond that. Um, you know, and a lot of people consider that the downfall of U2 when those albums came out and, and the albums after. Um, they just didn't hit the same way those old albums did. Whether they were better or worse, I mean, that's to discuss. But... For sure, they didn't hit. They didn't have the same impact to the fans, to the to, to the media and the market. I mean, they blew up. You know, they sold millions and millions of records because they're U2 though, like Aerosmith and AC/DC and Black Sabbath. A lot of these bands can sell just on name alone, and so they're U2. And there's a catch twenty two considering those uh, those pop framework songs that they went for. I mean. If they were carrying something that had some substance behind it, which they did for a very long time, well, great. But the second you drop that substance, or the second you even just get a little bit lazy with it, even if it doesn't seem like it's, you know, overtly so, 
it's immediately going to be very, very noticeable, especially to any longtime fan, especially to anyone who, I suppose, loved the band for a former reason. At that point, you strip it back, and it's just pop. That's not exactly what U2 fans were looking for, which is why U2 fans specifically tend to get the most heated about this argument. Right. The rest are just kind of like, eh, it's still good music. Wrapping back into my personal experience with U2 before we get into the new record, I didn't react as harshly to it initially because I liked the pop direction because I listened to a lot of pop music at the time when A Beautiful Day came out. However, when the album with Vertigo came out, How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb, two years later, and it was all still the same stuff, that's when I got frustrated and jumped ship. And it wasn't because, it was at that point because I could get that from so many other places and still at a different quality, I didn't really stay on board anymore. And then they released an album after that that I can't even remember the name of. And now we have the new record, which just came out last month, U2's Songs of Innocence. So automatically in the title, you know, there's going to be some reaching back mentally, you can tell. Songs of Innocence, An Innocent Time, this is what we can assume anyway. Um, the first track is The Miracle, parentheses, of Joey Ramone. Now, considering this, this is a track, just because of your reactions about the previous albums, you noticed you all initially, you weren't as as perturbed by the direction that yeah. U2 seemed to be moving in. Well, considering I, I, I wasn't coming from sort of a long-time U2 fanship, I went into this still knowing the hits and kind of at least holding them to that standard. Sure. I kind of skipped over through much of their work around the time that they started shifting. So when I jump in here, I feel like I've kind of been thrown by a couple of decades in many ways. And that's not just because I actually am being thrown by a couple of decades because of the songs that I know by YouTube, predominantly being in the 80s, but it's really because of the, the sound style that they seem to shift less in their own direction or the direction which you would have perceived to be U2's core, um, core train of thought from the 80s on, per se, right. but rather adapting to bands that seem to have adapted to them. One band that comes to mind, for instance, is Coldplay. Coldplay, I, I, I think you'd have to be under rock to, to, to forget the fact that Coldplay definitely has drawn upon a YouTube influence. For sure. Even Absolutely. if it's not directly. Even if it's not directly, because it could be the kind of thing that, you know, skips a generation or so, and they might have been like an interim band that, that followed off of U2 that Coldplay was in turn following off of. But either so, you, you, enter, you enter this, this, this dimension of, of pop rock that is so removed from that former thing. It has elements of it, but at this point, just here in the first track, it really was pop. Now, don't get me wrong, there's things later in this album that sort of start to move in, in different directions. But just as of... The miracle of Joey Ramone, as we experience it in just the first few bars. I don't mean to be a negative Nelly here, but this type of introduction is really kind of grown into a tired cliche for me. It's a trope at this point, even. Well, it's this sort of common go-to tactic now for several years with these rallying pop tracks to incorporate this, this sort of choir of nothing. Usually of no words, specifically. Just ahs or ohs or yes. Usually without any context at all. And frankly, I'm a little sick of it at this point. In fact, I was just talking about it the other day with a friend of mine, and he put a name to it. He called it anthemic pop, which is a pretty good descriptor when you think about it for this, this, this trend of overemphasizing the, the grandeur, the quote-unquote grandeur of your incredibly standard four-chord progressions. So, same goes for the melodies, also. The melodies that accompany these yeahs and ohs in turn. It's so safe and, and non-confrontational that it says just about one thing. Unite and sing. Which isn't a bad thing. It's not even a new thing. First and, and, and most memorable instance that I can conjure up is, of course, Hey Jude by the Beatles, which has this, 
this sprawling four-minute na-na-na-na-na-na-na outro. Now, that was pretty rallying too, but that's because it had a whole track from which to approach such a climax. But when you're building a song out from it and around it, I, I, I often find that modern bands like Fun and, and Mumford and & Sons, it, it's a bit of an overstatement because it basically flatlines you before you can develop with just that one thing, unite and sing, which is a, it's a harmless message, but I gotta go back to that one quote from you, Matt, just a couple weeks ago, and that's music should never really be harmless, because if that's all you can say for it, then it's probably not doing a whole hell of a lot else. Wow, I sound great. Um, the Yeah, I may have paraphrased you and spunked you up a bit. <laughs> well, whatever. That's what you do. That's your purpose. Thank you. Um, that reminds me of something that we're going to get into actually towards the end of the, the episode. You know, our topic for today is what I really want to talk about was this idea of anthemic rock and anthems in music. If, if it's obviously an anthem, is it really still an anthem? There's a, mm. And what had inspired me to that, and a quick tangent before we jump onto this track and get really in there, is there's an artist who I've talked about a few times now, who I've uh, befriended, called Dr. Awkward. He has a song called Different, which is one of his first big singles, where he sings about... Awkward and different. (laughs) But he sings about how, you know, all gangster rap is saying the same thing and all rap is saying the same thing. And he's a little bit different. And he tells you why he's a little bit different. Whether he's nerdy, he likes to wear three Howling Wolf t-shirt, he, you know, plays video games, whatever it is. That's an anthem. But, you know, funds, whatever the the song they released, because they all sound the same, that's not an anthem. That's dumb. But anyway, tangent over. We're going to jump back into the track. So, besides the chanting being quaint and I want to move past, um, the first well, thing I notice about you 2 besides the music, because the music still sounds kind of what you would expect from them, at least in their pop roots, is that Bono's vocals haven't missed a beat. Say what you want about him personally, say what you want about their career, the dude can still sing, and sing well. And, yeah, let's get the positive stuff out of the way. The, and the... he nails it from the minute he starts singing-wise. Maybe not content, but for sure, the notes he's hitting. I notice every phrase has his signature vibrato. It's got the control, it's got the feeling, it's got all of that. The only thing it really suffers from here is that it's it, probably the most important thing for me is that the, the music itself, the melody itself, feels like something that Bono's kind of already done before. It, it feels like sort of a composite of his previous work. Uh, for instance, I, I noticed, and John helped me on this, John who does know a little bit more previous uh, U2 than I do, he, he honed it down as uh, Vertigo, specifically the pre-chorus in Vertigo off of, uh, what was it, Zeropa? No, Vertigo is off of How to Dis- no, that's right. Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Right, right, right. And uh, I just found it kind of interesting that they were so similar, sort of in that, 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 that reach upward. Not to say that that's not all over U2's work, but certainly when you have such a, a vast discography, these crossovers are bound to be apparent. In case you guys are wondering, John is here. Here he is. Yes, I've, I've been... He's been waiting well, to chime in on that, hopefully. He's been biding no, no, his time. I, I, we wanted to get the good things out first, right? Oh. You're gonna drag it down, aren't you? Yeah, I'm totally dragging it down because... Well, there's people waiting for you, too. Bono, from uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, my favorite song by U2. And yes, I'm not just a U2 hater. I also am a U2 lover of the earlier work. Um... There, he invokes something. Bono knows how to invoke feeling in his lyrics. When he feel, when I feel like he's putting the effort into here, and here right away, I'm I'm seeing more of the new stuff as opposed to the older affair. The lyrics are are just they have no context to one another. They're snippets. 
they're, they're, they end up being almost platitudes. And this is a word I, I'm going to want to use throughout the whole album at, this, uh, at points because that's how disconnected everything gets. With, with I, I was young, not dumb, just wishing to be blinded by you, brand new, and we were pilgrims on our way. What the hell, what the hell does that mean? It doesn't relate to the previous part. It doesn't relate to the course it goes into. I woke up at the morning when the miracle occurred and heard a song that made some sense out of the world. Woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred. A moment, excuse um, me. I mean, it's broad. I think maybe that's its only failing at this point, is that it's so broad you could apply this to almost anything. But it but, is obviously but, a... I mean, you could take it directly from the album title. It's a song of innocence in the, in the, no, no. the broadest sense. If you and this is actually a lot of these songs. If you go to uh, at youtube.com, their website, uh, you will see snippets about Bono explaining most of these songs. This is the miracle of Joey Ramone of the Ramones of one of the bands that was most influential to him. Okay, and the band to get into it, you get that from the title. That this is for a specific individual. But see, Where's that's the, the point. When you go Where into the, is the personality? when you go into the individual lyrics, they start to lose that touch. In exactly. other words, any any song where you have to go back into the annals of the little little footnotes that come with the album, and obviously, yes, you should probably be going to that anyway, just if you're interested in the band. But that really should not be the end of the story. In fact, that shouldn't be any part of the story at all. It should be supplementary information that you gain, being an interviewer, wanting to do. Uh, additional music journalism like we try to do here and there but that's that's really not part of the art the art is the music and the art is your lyrics they should pretty much speak for it in and this later, case the title on, as you said the title is speaking for it but these ly- these lyrics are broad too and even too broad. later on they become conflicting lyrics without the mystique of of depth we got language so we can't communicate religion so i can love and hate Music so I can exaggerate my pain and give it a name. goes to show, though, that the it's, Ramones were quite an influence. Yeah, I, I, I do get that. And when you consider, especially the, well, the, the sounds the that I roots. heard about war, yeah, the war, their first album definitely had punk roots. And when you think about the theme, even if, even if their music didn't eventually, didn't really evolve in the punk direction, you can really just hear it in war, and I, I think I'll pretty much leave it at that. But... Even if that's the case, their theme work really does develop from punk very strongly because of the, the sort of harsh social commentary, uh, commentary on war, commentary on, on urban, urban issues, that kind of thing, the, the kinds of stuff that they saw as, as, as angsty teens. All of that is in their work, through and through, even the stuff that kind of falls short musically. So it's, it's a personal point, and it's a personal song for, for that fact. But I, I think all of that is really just buried in the lyrics, because the music itself is, is it's, it's, it's too... Open? It's too generic? Not, not it's generic. It's too open to interpretation, yeah. if all you had was that. Because generic is not really the, the correct term for this. This isn't, you know... Well, it's, a, gener- it's generic by U2 standards. Yes. I will if ad- you know the discography. I will admit, though, that I would not have guessed, really, that it was about Joey Ramone. Had Unless I not it read was the in parentheses of It really Joey is. Ramone. Like, that's, I think, the thing that bums me out the most, is I love the Ramones. I love the Ramones. I will be the first to admit that some of their music is very repetitive. But I love the Ramones. Because that, of the Ramones. There's reasons to but, love them. But that said, and that's not even the most important part. <laughs> I don't love the Ramones. <laughs> Shut up, Steve. That's not the point. The point is that if you're going to do an homage to a band I really like, 
I mean, give me something. Don't just mention it in the title. That's a cheat. It's a cheat. No, but see, that's not about it. It's not about whether you like it or not. It's really about whether they like it or not, and that's just the thing. That's why I'm, frankly, withholding my feelings about the Ramones. It's not important. None of it is important whether you like them or hate them. It's really about them. But that's the what I'm time, saying. The time frame here. And the lyrics, again, you kind of have to walk down this middle ground. On one hand, yes. You know, I was young, not dumb, just wishing to be blinded by you, brand new, when we were pilgrims on our way. In a broad sense... That is sort of explaining this this youthful innocence coming to fruition and realizing the ills of the world and trying to convey them. But those sort of lyrics are almost... There's so many bands and musicians that have wrote some of those exact same words. Young and dumb is a theme for punk in general, which maybe connects to the idea of what he's creating here. But this is something that was, you know, first invented 30 years ago. I mean, this is this is just rehashing uh, ideas that maybe they had in their first album, maybe they didn't, maybe they learned from somebody else, but it's just a rehash. I mean, it's There's a, nothing it's a there. sweet homage. It really is a sweet homage when you consider some of these lines. I mean, you know, everything I ever lost now has been returned in the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. It's sort of, it's, yeah. it's that moment. He's capturing that moment of his initial inspiration. There's something there and I, that I don't think is to be dismissed. My number one problem, frankly, is not the lyrics here, and that is just the music. The music, to be frank, should have gone, if you were going to build that, that, uh, that sort of core origin moment, I would have said, go back to war. Go 100% back to war and, and recapture that, that former sound that you had. Because if you're already going in a, in a sort of retro... Uh, thematic sense, you might as well go in the retro music sense. That's that's pretty much the end of it. Well, if yeah. the two things don't match, you got a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think we're kind of dragging out the obvious conclusion of this song that it just it didn't do enough, it didn't go anywhere, and it seemed very basic and predictable. Um, the bridge perhaps was the best part. This sort of overlapping, we can hear you, we can hear you in falsetto, just one over the other. It even probably was the most. Uh, I thought it was the most intense chordal work, even though it's just two chords, really. It goes from this A sus 2 to a, a C major 7, but then it kind of fizzled out at the end by going to, to G and F, which is sort of predictable when you when you sort of fade it out there. It's just, uh, that was probably the only bit of tension that I felt in this in this song, and then it, it's it's just too brief, because frankly, this is another thing I'm going to keep going back to, and we'll, we'll definitely recount that in the next few tracks, is that the structure of these tracks are so shamelessly pop, that it keeps them from hitting real heights. And well, that is to say just the sort of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, outro structure. Yeah. That's always what we get. That's pretty and much... it's always going to be the bridge in which we get that one moment of real profound tension where it seems like it's going somewhere. But it never does. I mean, Not I would, 100%. I would argue, though, that there are moments of, of tension in some of the tracks. There but... are moments as we go further in this album where the rest of the tracks have a sort of overall tension to them such that I don't mind that predictable structure as much because it, it's all the kind of thing that is, is really going to be hurt by just the fact that if, you're, if you feel like you're suffering until that moment, then, then there's no point. Right. Um, and I think this is a good segue into the second track on the record, which is called Every Breaking Wave. Now, I'm going to play a game with John for the rest of this album review. Before we get into lyrics or before we get into describing the song, cheating though because we've talked a little bit beforehand i'm gonna predict the emotionality of the song then he will confer with the lyrics to tell me if i am actually accurate i'm just basing this on the title alone 
the first then this is the first time we're playing that game so every breaking wave i get heartbreak sadness longing you know textbook emotionality essentially for a title that way um the sounds as it starts has got this kind of very slow build almost like an old cold play sound which the fact that we're comparing a band that is compared to another to band its, to itself it's a paradox it's a music paradox paradox anyway so that that that's my little bit for the beginning steve take us into a little bit about the music well, I mean, you pretty much captured it by summing up Coldplay. <laughs> but now, I mean, that's the thing. I'm a fan of Coldplay. To be honest, I'm more of, I mean, I just know Coldplay more than I know U2. Um, I was a product of this generation, and I just, Coldplay, I mean, sorry, U2 was one of those bands I just sort of, I don't know, I just skipped over. People always sort of recommended to me, but, you know, you don't get to everything in your life. Well, Coldplay was a band I kind of grew up and around, and I found them, frankly, to hit closer to home in many ways than many of the U2 tracks that I had heard in passing. Now, who knows, maybe this is just because I'm a, a product of the modern times, even though I'm also a product of, like, 200 years ago, but, you know what, <laughs> you pick and choose what you can get. In this particular case, Coldplay, I found, was advancing some of these 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 sounds, some of this this sort of post-rock vibe that had been begun by U2. Now here, U2 is definitely exploring the more downplayed side. The bass and the drum are kind of steady. The guitar has a sort of repeating motif in this track between just, just two notes, which isn't bad just for color, but that's pretty much the whole song. And that's where I swing back to Coldplay in, in this regard, because Coldplay would pick a motif and they would expand on it. You know, this is why this paradox that you just mentioned is so odd, is because if Coldplay's pulling from U2, and maybe this is an extrapolation because this is just what I hear at this moment. Extrapolate but, away. Extrapolate away. If Coldplay is pulling from U2 and then moving further with it, why then would not the more mature, advanced, years of experience worth U2 not sort of go further with it themselves. Why are they still stuck in the same loop? It's an annoying paradox, which which I, I, I hate to go back to that, you know, oh, the newer generation is better, because I almost never take that stance. In this case, oh, I almost gotta. Well, that's because this is the sort of song that you 2 will put on every single one of their albums. There's going to be a slow, retrospective type of song, and Matt really nailed the feeling of it just by the first three chords and title alone. Because the whole song is about separation, the wearing down of time as personified by aquatic symbol, uh, symbolism. Hmm. The issue is that this aquatic symbolism that they tend to run with in the verses primarily is also coupled with weird other tidbits. Just from the first line, every breaking wave on the shore tells the next one there'll be one more. That by itself can be profound, but hmm. when you follow it up with and every gambler knows that to lose is what you're really there for. That back and forth permeates the entire song of doing something that, oh, we're like the sea, we're like breaking waves, we're like jetsam and floatsam, and then putting it with just these random pieces of imagery, it, 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 it really breaks up the overall uh, content cohesion of the song itself. That and the chorus has nothing to do with the song other than just reiterating what they're trying to obliquely create with their verses. The chorus is just laying it out. If you go your way and I go mine, are we so helpless against the tide? Baby, every dog on the street, I don't know where they're getting a dog from, every dog on the street knows that we're in love with defeat. Are we ready to be swept off our feet and stop chasing every breaking wave? 
there's two messages going on here, almost three. We're being separated, but we're coming together. Should we be in love with defeat? Okay, that by itself, I could run with something like that. But they don't. They leave that one little line that that can have so much meaning just dangling there. It's it's frustrating to see stuff like this. Hmm. And I'm then hold my peace. And then on top you of go. <laughs> on top of that, the buildup that the song makes musically, it, it builds like the previous song had. You know, it leads itself towards this tail end of the track with the instrument the ob- obligatory instrumental interlude ending bit but it doesn't really go anywhere like we get some guitar solo work but uh, the real cliche is in the next track so actually i'll hold that comment that i was going to make for the next track but needless to say the song emotionally breaks within the first three chords doesn't go anywhere stays there emotionally but doesn't do anything with it you just kind of sit in this place like like sitting in a warm bathtub you're just kind of sitting in your own filth at that point. You know, there's nothing new. Oof. 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 I, I would have reserved that one for Yeah, the I, don't, I don't even know if I can go that harsh for this track. I mean, this track is... Oh, I hate to use the same word again, but it's harmless. It's harmless as far as I'm concerned, which is not a good thing. Not a no. good thing for me. I don't want harmless. Okay, I do want to take that back. I am being overly harsh. But my point is you're kind of sitting within this metaphor, and it's not really going anywhere. It's and, not as harsh as I said. And, and, oh, they do it again, the chanting... Uh, uh, bridge. Yeah. No, the bridge, okay, this bridge is a little bit different. This bridge is actually more of a a spoken word style bridge. Um, It's a little bit more played up kind of like you would almost like this hip-hop style. Just a little bit. A little bit more, more, it has more cadence to it. Um, But I felt it was sort of like a forced variety to this track, Mm -hmm. whereas the rest of these choruses are just so, I mean, it's this devolved pop style where no phrase really reaches any peak. It is this continuous flatline that is really, really hard to escape from as you move through this track because the only thing to latch onto at this point is the color. The color, the same color that you had in the beginning is still the same color you have now, but there's just no progression in this in this in this arc until you get to this bridge, which isn't really progression. It's it's a it's a splotch of variety. Just, just to sort of say the song has a little bit more to it, or we are going someplace and inevitably we don't. We don't. We always pull back, and then it just goes back to the same blasé chorus, and the track ends. That's really all you can say for it. That, to me, is nothing more than harmless. It's nothing worse than harmless. Fair. Fair, fair and accurate assessment. Track three, California, parentheses, there is no end to love. First off, I actually enjoyed the chanting introduction here because two things it reminded me of the beach boys which is not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination they were and they're a great band but here's the other side i felt like that little tidbit that they introduced us with the the barbara santa barbara chant that was was the only part that really felt like it had character because what they go into afterwards just falls apart on them. But to play my game that I'm playing, that I'm the only one playing, but I'm still going to play it, based on the title and just the first few bars and the way this this early part was sung, I I guess that it was kind of this naive eagerness, this kind of excitement almost. Um, So that's where the emotionality of the track leads. And the intro... Um, I agree with John, though. It was very interesting. It almost remi- reminded me of Barbara Ann, you know, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-
That makes sense. The reason being, because I, I, the reason I liked this intro quite a bit is because these vocals, they kind of just explore a few notes here, and they proceed with this overlapping effect in, in F-sharp minor. Uh, when we're just on the, few, the first few notes of the scale, just the first, second, the third, F-sharp, G-sharp, A, and then a slightly more coherent motif settles in, and this one includes the seventh, it includes the E. And when overlapped, it sounds, it sounds kind of misty at this stage. I actually felt like I'm by the sea, in California, by the Pacific, just feeling the waves crash, and that I'm experiencing it somehow for the first time. So, as you pointed out, John, or have you pointed it out yet, that this track is basically about their sort of first experience in L.A.? Yes, it was supposed to be about their first experience in L.A. Or at least that's how Bono explains it, but aside from the very first song lines past that, that, that original chorus work well just like, there's, there's as so... of that though as of that it is a, it is effective musicality as far as i'm concerned it's what i had been looking for in the previous two tracks it's this sort of tone meets meets conveyance at this point and and it actually reminded me of uh, it was drastically different as far as this album had been concerned at this point this this yes. is the first the first track where i say all right i, I this could be a different band and it's, i kind of like to see those moments i mean yeah, yeah at this point you know this is not even the point where you have to like sort of prove your identity at this point you think you too has to prove that ident- identity no way this this reminded me of pinback believe it or not the sort of the best work that i've heard from pinback and they're, it's interesting that they're a post-rock band that probably in turn borrowed from people who borrowed from these these sort of guitar-utilizing, uh, sweeping landscape uh, tactics. And I thought they were one of the best at it. And it's interesting that in this case, U2 is sort of swinging back to fulfill that same exact thing. So, I mean, I was, I, they had me there. If you, if you and it, and I thought, want to po- point out where they falter, well, I think that they, I'll follow. I think it blended very well into the melody initially. Um, and, and, you know, I think based on John's description of the song or Bono's description that John used, my emotional assessment is fairly accurate. But, no, that's the problem. When you start actually listening to what Bono's saying and how he's saying it, and this is where um, I'm going to point out Bono's got a big flaw. He is he's attempting to be pleading in these lyrics because he's not talking about anything to do with California other than the fact that the words California and Santa Barbara are actually in the song. It's about someone he's missing and in love with still. It's about... And it tries to be roundabout about it, but the chorus sums it up very, very, very specifically. All I need to know and all... No, excuse me. All I know and all I need to know is there is no, yeah, there is no end to love. He started off with one idea... And the first verse kind of tried to talk about this idea, but he completely just... But he doesn't mention a person there. It could be there's no end to love of that city. No, but it's it's not about the city. That's the whole thing. It's always talking to a you. There is a person he's speaking to that he has love for. But after that first verse, it it falls apart. But you can personify states. No, no, no. This is not personifying the state. This is personifying a person. You originally presented it to me as that. Perhaps that's not it, then. (laughs) No, it's it's a conflict of ideas here. Because the verses try to harken back to the idea of, oh, we're in California. And inevitably devolves into, we're so far away from you. Or, I'm so far away from you. And there's really no connection between these because... 
hear his voice is just so weak for me that when you couple it with that kind of Bobby tempo that it goes into, which by itself can be used for something else, I just, I, it feels bleh. It feels just like he's kind of phoning it in. I'll admit there's a vocal lilt that he has in this song that just does not have the same impact as some of the previous songs. It's a little... It, it's a little lazy at this point. And then beyond that, we also sort of have this this poppy wall of noise that kind of takes the stage in almost the whole latter, latter two-thirds of this track. It's We also get a lot of the same thing that I pointed out before, a lot of these whoa-whoa-whoa's over and over and again. And then beyond that, you have a guitar solo that also seems listless. It's, well, then- it, it just repeats three, th- it's three phrases identically, and then the fourth phrase is just a little bit of variety for the sake of just having some variety. And I refuse that's to it. let you move past that, though, because that guitar solo angers me, and I'll explain why in my mini rant. Okay. You are the edge. The edge. <laughs> you are the edge in U2. You constantly make fantastic guitar solos, and I've heard a lot of them. Why would you make such a lazy guitar solo? I just find it unacceptable. Bono, even if his lyrics aren't as strong as they used to be, he's still delivering them mostly with as much passion as he always does. But to, to write a three-chord repetitive guitar solo isn't a solo. It's just lazy and obnoxious. And this isn't the first no, time he three, does it. It's not even three chords. It's, it's one phrase with that is repeated three times, times with a slight variation in the fourth. And That's it. And this is the first time it happens, but on this record, it's not the last. And it's just, I find it unacceptable. If you're, you know, I'd expect the same of Brian May or Joe Perry or Flea if he's doing a bass solo. Like, you don't do baloney and you don't do <laughs> crap. It's, it's just, you're capable of so much more. Why would you, th- don't throw the guitar solo in at all. That shows more skill as a musician to not put in something so repetitive that you're claiming to be a solo. It just seems inexcusable to me. Beyond that, this track really angers me for just the single reason that I think I originally conveyed. So I, I, I really adore this first intro. The intro to this track, I think, was wildly unique. I think they had something going here, which, okay, it may. so what if it reminded me of modern post-rock bands? To me, that's a good thing. That shows you adapt with the times. That shows you're, you're borrowing from even some of the best of your, your peers, uh, your admirers in many ways, that, that's, that, shows, that shows humility. And it also shows an ability to sort of take your, your, yourself out of your art and then analyze it and then revisit the art. That not to stay in the sort of endless loop that they had been staying in, but the problem is that they just dropped it. They dropped it for a track that was very much like the previous two in the end, um, very much like the first one specifically. At that point, I, I, I just couldn't... The wall of noise was kind of... I, I, I couldn't immerse myself in any specific part. At that point, I, I can't even hone in on the guitar solo because you barely even notice it is a guitar solo. And one final point I want to make is this song has probably the one of the worst lyrical phrases of the entire album. California at the dawn you thought would never come, but it did like it always does. That's just, that's, that's poor. That's childish. Well, um... That's just... It's a free album. Yeah, but when they were writing it, they didn't know (laughs) it was free. It's free from, no, it's free from iTunes. Yeah, I had to say something there. Anyway, let's, let's move on and escape from this into Song for Someone. Now, we're going to continue my little game because it's been fun so far. This track, by title alone... 
I guessed, was a passionate ballad about love and regret. We'll see if I, that's true when John tells us about the lyrics. Cl- close. Close. Well, that's good. I believe it was an ode to, like, a wife, a girlfriend, something like that. Close enough. Um, I'll take it. And here, this this seems like one of those truly sad songs they're going for. Um, also, it, this one... I'm having less complaints lyrically. It feels choppy, but it feels like sort of like you don't know how to explain love and the emotions you're feeling towards someone. Which is appropriate so, when you consider the angsty teen, obviously, just coming yeah, to terms with these choppy, feelings. But it feels like there's a lot more heart and effort into this. Well, Though, it, it, it's it, once again, I feel like Bono's voice isn't really projecting the emotion so much as just projecting the words. I mean, here's the thing. Just at this juncture, we've already mentioned enough things, and all taking into account the title, Songs of Innocence, we already know this is pretty much a throwback album, even though it's not reaching all the marks of a throwback it's album. It's clearly something personal. It's reaching, it's reaching this sort of personal point of innocence, where he's acknowledging at least, at least that element of, of humility has succeeded. He acknowledges a time in which he was figuring out the world and didn't know it all yet. So I think it's actually rather appropriate to have a track called Song for Someone because of that, that you know, tried and true teenage musician thing where if the instrument's your, your tool, then you might as well use it for the person you love, whoever that may be at that time. Right. Write that song for that special someone and that'll be your ticket. Or maybe just do it because you feel you have to do it. Beyond that, it's almost pointless to, to I think, superimpose names over this, superimpose specific people, because every line comes across as, as exactly as broad as that. It is just a song for someone, but it's in the title. So you you know that's what it's going to be. Well, and also, you might as well just take it as some kind of ironic throwback. Well, and also the idea that as a teenager, you tend to be more cryptic with your feelings. And this is exactly that. Mistakenly you know? cryptic. Yeah. Mistake yeah. is that's the yeah. big thing. Yeah. A teenage, I mean, a, a good poet would never strive to be cryptic. It right. would be pointed, and if it's but cryptic incidentally... But often strive to be Yes. Cryptic. Just here, so I think that's poetry. Yeah. Here's, here's where the whole song boils down. It's in the second verse. You let me into a conversation, a conversation only we could make. Right, right there. That is, that's a really solid idea for a relationship. You break and enter my imagination. Whatever's in there, it's yours to take. Another great idea. I was told I'd feel nothing for the first time. You were slow to heal, but this could be the night. That's where it's getting a little choppy, but you can see he's trying, and it feels like that teen trying. Bono's not a freaking teen anymore. But then, no, but that's see, but that's no, not this point. is a throwback. In which case, point. in this case, no. That's why I brought it's, that up. But it's got a retrospective kind of idea. The whole album has a very retrospective kind of idea. Looking to the past, speaking from an adult about what was going on back mm. then, I would expect a little bit better, and that's why it's still good lyrically, just not. Great but see, all. that wouldn't fit the style study here. Yeah. If you're going to put yourself in the time and kind of convey it, I, I see. Look, no, I'm going to. I think I see your point only as much as I don't quite see. I don't see what it's meant to convey in doing that. I I do think what's going on here is that he is revisiting the past and simply presenting it as such. He's not trying to put any extra spin, and maybe that's John's point right here. That's the problem. The problem is that there isn't any extra spin. And that's that. 
there's nothing the song offers as a result. Well, All we're doing is seeing this reflection, exactly. and that's the point. But that, see, that that's not that's not a real you know impactful thesis right there. It's falling flat because of that. It's not engaging enough. Just telling a story sometimes is, but in this case, it's not. The lyrics are pretty, but. They're not super introspective. Unless I'm a, unless I'm missing it, there really should be. It really should accompany some kind of some kind of uh, inner wisdom. Yeah, I agree, and that just never comes. That's exactly it. That's a, I agree wholeheartedly. That's that's my issue here. There's no inner wisdom. It just comes off as of the time and falls flat. Yeah, perfect. Well. I want to mention a couple things about the music. Oh, right. <laughs> we got that. That, that thing? We that got thing. that. Um, we, we used to do that first, you know? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Are you going to repeat about how the bridge at the end is a simple solo that's uh, just a guitar going over and over and over again? No, not really. Because oh, it already okay. is, we know that. we already coming. said that. Yeah. We should have mentioned at some point that this track is almost all acoustic. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's not all acoustic, but it has this acoustic-driven guitar to it. It's a stripped-down kind it, which of vibe. It is different for this album, for sure. It actually strikes me as being very folk country in this regard. So, again, it has that rawness to it, which is what you'd expect from from the angsty teens, just using the raw tools at his disposal. I don't need outlets. Yeah. It's just, you know, this is from the heart. <laughs> the heart is not electric. Technically, <laughs> um, it could be if you had an artificial heart. That's if you had a pacemaker or anything. The point is... E major, you know, again, just about the simplest key possible that you can do on a guitar. So we're we're speaking from this this place of 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 innocence in terms of uh, in terms of musical knowledge as well. And we do have this one little interesting thing. Just because he can build this rather thin but semi mysterious um, re repeated framework here, this little this little motif that begins with that E and then it goes up to F sharp. Uh, the, the F sharp above the next octave, and then down just a whole step to the E that was one octave higher. And it just moves through that, and then it shifts up this time doing the F sharp octave, and then after that, it goes up to the G sharp octave. It's just this little round that it goes through that keeps it from kind of hitting on any major chords. There's no major chords right that. It's, it's just sort of implying things. This lack of fully formed chordal movements, just intervals really, is kind of what makes the guitar so effective on its own because it gets to imply things without really saying them outright. And then the drums step in, they thicken it out a little bit, but they never really belt it out. It's this slow build, but it never really goes anywhere at this point. Yet again, it's just around. And frankly, if I was going to cite a fault musically in this piece, it was that enter of the fifth. The fifth, the second the B comes in here, then all of a sudden it's this, it's this sort of strong but true and often needed return to the one chord, which is, frankly, I found it annoying at this point. Only because that wasn't needed, because the mystery was carrying this track. That almost would carry this sort of hint of wisdom that the B ruined. It's, it's too predictable at that point. Not to say that maybe musically you didn't need it at some point, but it's, again, why not perpetuate the mystery? That's, that's basically my, my two cents as far as this, this track is concerned, because it's another tease. You know, every single time we get something that seems new, they depart from it almost immediately. Yep. You pretty much summed it up pretty well. There's not really much to add to that. I mean, that's more or less just flushing out exactly what we've been going going on about yeah. about the song. And there's um, and there's no bridge to discuss here. No. Instead the, the the I believe there was a bridge, but I'll I'll just cite the instead the the repetitive instance in this case that the guitar solo is is the same case as last time. Solo. It is a repeat of the same exact phrase 
if you fell four asleep, times over. It's a solo if you can even call it that. If you fell asleep ten minutes ago, go back, listen to my rant about the solo. It applies here too. Moving on to track five because I've had enough of this song. Um, Iris, hold me close, hold me close in parentheses. Um, we found out very early on. So before I, my emotional guess, I want to cite John because it's important here. Um, this is a song dedicated to Bono's mother. Uh, little backstory: Bono's mother died when he was fourteen. Right after he lost his mother's father, his grandfather, um, sort of a sweet story, sweet sad story of she kind of died of a broken heart type of a deal. Uh, the song does portray this kind of love loss, but without the sexual tension of love. It's more of a well, warmth loss, a well, coldness. Well, uh, and as I guess by the title alone, my guess of emotionality was love and thankfulness and that seems to come through pretty clearly in the lyrics in most places. It's got that warm, gooey, sweet feeling. But the problem is, and this is a problem we've run into several times. We've talked about fathers doing songs for their daughters, daughters doing songs for their fathers. In this case, a son doing a song for his mother. It's very hard to be overly harsh because when you're coming from the heart, things aren't always perfect, clean, incredible, and astonishing. Mm. That said, the song is very one-dimensional. It's very much what it is. Take that as you will. I'm not going to bash it for that at this juncture. Um, I just feel like it, it, it stays in that sweet kind of reminiscent area, area and doesn't really go anywhere. These songs, not these songs, these lyrics become, like I said before, kind of, kind of platitudes. They're, they're just generically applied to anybody you may have lost or is no longer part of your life. Or even, at times, like, pets. I mean, there's really just no investing into these words here. I don't want to be so so cold here, because obviously it was it must have been a tragic thing. It's just, you take the song for the song, and it is, it is one of the crop. I, I can't... But, you know, that's, that's to say that just about every single song, ideally, would come from an emotional center, come from a sense of deep loss... Maybe it's the, the sense of being removed. You know, everyone experiences death in their life. That's not something that can you can isolate to one person. Everyone, almost everyone, will, will encounter death, and many of it will, much of it will be profound. In many cases, you, you obviously should hopefully lose your, your parents before they lose you. Um, that's about the best you can hope for in life, frankly. Uh, and that's kind of depressing. So when you take into account the years removed, it is the, the sort of thing you can just take at face value and, and just accept it from there. So when you look at these individual metaphors, such as attributing to a star, that's something that it, you could take at face value. Obviously, a star is something very grand, just as you pointed out before. This is, this is something that is, is, is in, it's an idolization. It's almost a removed idolization because that's the way mythology often treats sort of uh, creatures of lore, is to see them in the stars... And now they're there for eternity. They're a member of a constellation that you go, you can tell your kids about them. They can tell their kids about them. It's, it's so, it does have that, that removed sense. I think in that sense, it actually is a little, a little more powerful than, for instance, um, a, a, a song that occurred right after a death. Because maybe that would be a little bit more raw, but it wouldn't have that sense of, you know, I still love you after these many years. So it does have that going for it. Yes, but also my one-dimensional comment was mostly musically, not emotionally. This one, I, I, I took issue with the drum speed. I really, I found those just 
just a little tacky, really. Just how quickly and how compressed a lot of the drum work was trying to be. Let me revert it. I was also I was also not a fan of the way the chords just kind of broke, rebuild again, and then broke, rebuild again. This is another time. I'm just no. I'm, I'm going I'm to argue sure. that. I'm actually going to argue that. I think this was a in that respect. This track had it was a slight turning point for this album in that. I appreciated the sort of cutting in and cutting out of the instruments. Uh, that's the kind of thing that these other tracks leave nothing to the imagination. The same instrumentation that was there in the beginnings or, or during the first verse is going to be there in the final outro. So when you you know try to play around with this little give and take set of instrumentation, I kind of appreciated that a little bit. But it's sort of a back and forth with this track. On one hand, I find a few things enticing. The other things I find a little bit cliched, such as the bass here, I thought was a perk. I sort of liked the the, the kind of grumbly... Uh, I believe this is the one that sounded a little bit more retro, a little bit more... Uh, oh, no, actually, that was the next track that sounded a little bit 80s. Either way, I still like the rumble of the bass here. And then the the, the guitar had had an, an, additional rum, an additional rumble to it itself, and it started doubling with the bass later. And then I think you also had this little bit of a light piano here, just playing around on the thirds and the seconds. I kind of appreciated that as far as color was concerned. But then let's dip back to another thing that I found a little cliched. It was sort of repeat the title, or in this case the parenthetical title of the track, Hold Me Close, Hold Me Close. One too many times with that. Over the course of this track, it was quite a few, and it got a little old. Also, the... the cliche that he's been doing pretty much throughout the album now comes to a head here because he repeats it a lot and it gave me the idea of hey guys what's the difference between or, or no what's the similarity between Bono and a car alarm woo 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 like I mean not that candidates per se but he does a lot of that and it's I get it's for emphasis and I mean you're talking to someone who's a Metallica fan so every ooh and yeah I know it's not a lyric written <laughs> so I, I get emphasis using onomatopoeia but that was my point in the very beginning of this entire review. It's it, just, it was, uh, exactly. That's why I found it so, so... It was such a gag that I had. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm even tired. I am tired of calling it a cliché. How, how many things removed is that at this point? Right. I mean, if, if it was a cliché five years ago, it is not any better now. At this point, I'm a little sickened by it. And they decided to pull that on the very, very first, first few bars of the first track of their most recent free album here. So it's just this, you know, overt accessibility that doesn't really try to be unique in any sense. And then here again, they pull it in this track. So yeah, that's, that's I think, probably my main problem with this track, um, even more so than the, uh, the repeat of Hold Me Close. Yeah. Um, but it's just that back and forth thing, because I did like the varied instrumentation, but, you know, I liked the bass, but I didn't like the repeat of E minor. This track is just, it's sort of a, it's, it's too all over the place. It doesn't really have that, that strong center to it. Um, I will say that this is the track that perhaps more reminded me of Coldplay, because it did reach some, some peaks that even Coldplay may have reached, perhaps in their lesser variety. Let, that is to say, a less memorable side of Coldplay. Yeah. It's a shame. It is. Um... Shame to insult Coldplay, that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> From my perspective. Um, I am excited, though, about the next track, which is Volcano. Um, John, you didn't have anything else to add to that one, did you? No. Okay. So, on to Volcano. So, Volcano is the first of a few tracks in a row that I get really excited about. So, Volcano had a really awesome kick-ass bass intro. I mean, and it might have been awesome and kick-ass, and I'm using those words very loosely, 
because it was different. But that said, also, continuing to play my game, my guess that this song, Volcano Alone, trying to be visual, um, is about a very volatile anger fueled from depression and loss. This was a great follow-up for what Iris could have been because I feel like this is the is some of the more fitting emotions you would associate with loss of a parent, loss of a loved one. Uh, because this, we're getting good chorus work, we're getting good lyrics, we're getting kind of a dark theme, but it's got energy that keeps it from actually becoming scary dark or depressing or anything like that. It's raw anger that, that only youth can really do. The reason for that is the bass. This is what I started to say in the last track, but mistakenly that was this track I'm referring to. The bass here is is so 80s. It is it is straight from from war, from the yeah. kind of bass work that you would hear in war. Which um, see the thing is, bass sort of went in a different direction. The second it went from the 70s into the 80s, it went over from a drastically different direction. What you get in the in the, in the 70s a lot is the sort of uh, this sort of direct input bass where everything is so clean and then all of a sudden in the 80s mostly they don't even bother with the direct input stuff anymore now they just stick the microphone smack dab in front of the amplifier usually on stage and that's often the way they would try to reproduce it in the studio as well and it, it, it combined with the fact that the bass would be heavily immersed in distortion you get this this raw grit to it that pretty much defined the whole punk movement at least my favorite side of the punk movement, even though I'm not that big of a punk guy. I love the kind of bass that would come out of that. It's a specific style that I think really, really fit with early U2, and I think to dip back into this is what I was looking for in several of these earlier tracks that seemed like thematically they would dip back toward that that time frame. So here, we get it. Um, there are a couple things. For instance, we're in E minor again, but I could overlook that for the sake of the texture of the bass. This had been my favorite track at this point in the album. Especially when it gets to the chorus, it starts getting really, really funky. And what I love about the funky chorus is also vocally, he goes into this engaging falsetto that really shows you why Bono still has the chops he does. He sings it in a way that pulls you in. It's one of those things that almost takes takes you on a journey with him. It's the falsetto? Just, it's, yeah. It's the, falsetto, this, the, the sort of falsetto um, call and response thing, or the little yeah. recurring motif that recurred in, in every in every chorus. You'd have this you'd have this main theme, and then you'd have this little, uh, this little piece of color, this little answer that would just go B, A, F sharp. It seems simple, but really, really high up on, on the, the high end of their falsetto, which is pretty extreme because we know they have pretty high falsettos as it is, added with a little bit of reverb, it, it, it's it's ethereal. It, was, it really is. It really was For this ethereal, moment, yes. mix that with the raw, gritty bass, and I think that's why you had this sort of far-reaching uh, range of sounds here. Dips to the low end, dips to the high end, you get a lot in the middle, and, and together it's this sort of funk... Uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say masterpiece, but it's quite funk a... Funk cocktail. I like that. I like that. You're welcome. Props for that. You're welcome. Um, John, where are we lyrically with this album? Was that my interpretation emotionally accurate? Been out in the wild, been out in the night, been out of your mind. Do you live here, or is this a vacation? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's guttural. Yeah. It is. Re it, it really is. And raw. It's, it's, it's really, really raw for a lot of you two. Um, especially the, their, their, their more recent stuff, because... 
it's it's breaching a little bit more of actual emotions instead of you know the usual easily digestible do you live here or is this a vacation this line i want to hone in on because it's 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 starting to delve into like actual mind thought processing mind thought where are you in this world mind thought mind thought mentok the Shh. mind taker <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I went Harvey Birdman on your ass. Thank you for discrediting everything I just said. You're welcome. Uh, but to bring more credit back to myself. Yes, thank you, Matt. <laughs> thank you for discrediting The verses him. are kept nice and short. He doesn't try to over-explain himself. He, he's keeping it simple. Yeah. This is where you two works. Well, and also you can keep it simple and still direct and, and, and impactful. And that's what's the focus here. In the past, on this record, it had been simple and not impactful. There was no gain from it but here you're actually getting something from it and that coupled with the musical changes that Steve was talking about and the guitar work in the bridge of this song is actually showing Edge what he's good at he, he, he's still not doing something super mind blowing but he's at least playing with it enough that you're engaged by it that it takes you somewhere and it gives that volatile volcano nature to the whole song that really makes it hold together very well for me and the volcano is a person i mean it's not just an idea of an emotional explosion it is a person the person we're assuming bono's uh, original uh, uh, emotional reaction to something just anger just him talking from past experience he's he's saying to his younger self you're a volcano you're gonna blow something wants you to blow don't let it keep it in or maybe let it out a little bit. I mean, I don't know. Here's the thing. The only problem I find with this is that as I look into these lyrics, as I hear you discuss these lyrics, I'm st- I am I can't really move them too far ahead of the previous lyrics on That's this album. That's why I'm still using the word good. Okay. Yeah. That's why it's just I'm, good. good. We, we're good. not saying that they're better. We're saying that the mix is better. There are tracks where the lyrics can definitely paint a much uh, clearer picture. As you go along, you notice a, a steep improvement in the lyrics, and they make the change. In this particular case, it's not that. It's the music. But we were never music- saying... All right, I got you. I got you. It's just... It's, it's something here when I look deep into these lyrics. It, you know... <laughs> I can't. I can't really overdo it. We get it. The volcano means something but, volatile, and that's about as deep as it gets. But, Actually, it's a pretty shallow statement. I remember. I guess the emotionality just based on the title mostly. It's more about the funk cocktail. Bingo. It's this cocktail with the lyrics that really make it a strong message overall. Um, yeah. And then from this track, we actually go to my favorite track on the record. And volcano was close, but I like this one better. And it's called Raised by Wolves. So interjection. Sure. If I may. Just because I, I mentioned you may it not. in the last... Oh, no. no yep. You didn't. I did. Um, oh, by the way, I, I, I confused one little thing in this progression here. I'm just going to correct that here to say that Song for Someone was an E major. Then we go to E minor in Iris, and we're still in E minor again as a volcano. Okay. So I made one little error there in to say that we did switch tones a little bit. But in this particular case, we go down to E flat. Now, that seems like... It's not so far away, but that's just that's well, just using, subtle enough. That is using, just subtle enough. It's it's a, it's a half step, and because of that little half step, it seems like you're not being taken to a predictable place. There's this slight little pull down in 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 depth of tone for this album. It's just kind of an overall sense that you get just from the overall impression of the last track into the overall impression of this track. That something has just tweaked a little bit. Perhaps we're going to get something a little bit more on the nose, something a little bit more serious in tone, and indeed we do. Yes. This next track 
it does speak from the same time frame, but it looks on different things. It doesn't it, speak it, on things that are just, you know, the innocence of time and youth and love and all that other stuff. This is a lot more about the place that he grew up and the issues that he was dealing with, the social issues surrounding early uh, 1970s Dublin. First off, you got the actual 60s Dublin. title, Raised by Wolves, which becomes a theme late in the song, so it's not just something getting repeated just to, you know, hone in an idea. It's, it's a great concept for what he's trying to describe here, which is conflict, which is personal conflict. And because this one, this one comes across, uh, hold on, this one comes across as death and destruction because without even looking at his, his old school work, uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, like the thing that made you two you two, this seems like that kind of throwback kind of a story. It's obviously drawn from a lot of the same source material. So should it be as, as impactful? And here's, here's the issue. No. Because for all the great lyrical work that's going on here, it doesn't quite hit those same belts as Sunday, Bloody Sunday. But, which, is, which, is, which is where it loses its power. But I refuse to fault the song for not being Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I'm sorry. That's... that's, that's... He did it once. He can no, do it again not, because he's done it again. Yeah, but you don't compare one song to another blatantly because that's not what we're here to do. It's, it's just not the point. And, but that's the problem with this song. It is blatantly a rehash of Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I disagree. It has its own personality, and here's why. Starting just musically with the, the guitar and piano work that it starts with. It's got the piano doubling the guitar. They're staying within the same place, which gives this kind of eerie beginning. This this th that adds that emotionality that Steve covered before I could even suggest. It. On top of that, the piano kind of has this old twang to it, sort of like it's an aged piano, which gives you this sort of you know throwback effect. This is mixed with an almost breathing kind of soundbite. It's a soundbite that you know it it reminded me of Allentown, Billy Joel, a Billy Joel song where you know he does ooh ah on his own, but it still gives that breathing, hard labor, working town feel. And this sound effect drives that home with the piano and guitar work. It goes to show that there can be exceptions to the rule. Because all that we're talking about is that, oh, onomatopoeia is bad. It has been used to such a, such a, a, a foul uh, extent in this album that you could almost be sick of it. Strange, though, just when you offer a little bit of, of, of text, just a little bit of, uh, of, of oomph behind it, then all of a sudden you don't interpret as this you don't interpret it as this mindless, as this mindless outburst. Instead, it becomes an instrument unto itself. It's an emotional release in this song. It actually conveys something. It's yeah. this breathy vocal effect that actually has a. Um, it, it, it's in the mixing that that it sounds cut off, like right after one instance of this these ah ahs break, then ooze break, and it doesn't do it justice when you combine that with the breathy effect here. It is this this recurring uh, recurring soundbite throughout the entire track, and it provides it with its own very unique air, which in, by the time you're done with it, it's completely different from Sunday Bloody Sunday. It really isn't even going back in the same punk direction, frankly. It's doing, a, it's doing it in a whole other style, but it explores perhaps the same thematic direction. That I appreciate. And also what I appreciate... Because it's reflective. And that also what I appreciate about this song musically is that it's the first time that we really get a build that's fleshed out in the song. It really does build and culminate and the bridge though still short like most of the bridges on this record 
is a piano bridge. So it's a little different. It gives us... Uh, did you break down the notes of the piano bridge on this one? Um, not the bridge specifically. Okay. So, but what I like, though, is that they at least tried something a little different. And it gave this song its own personality. I refuse to agree that it's trying to rehash something old. I will agree that it's looking back on something old. But I don't think that it's trying to be the same. I think it's got enough personality of its own. And I think what really gave it that individual personality was the way it started and that, that sound bite, which really made it impactful for me. There's more, too. But because that's also... It, it, the, the matter of... of considering we've been mentioning a lot about song structure here, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, well, it's not that this song really moves away from that in any sense. Instead, it does something different. It offers something in the interludes, and that is these really harsh guitar accents that sort of pulsate here and there, as if something intense just transpired. Kind of as, you know, the, 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 a sound effect you might hear during a movie when... Someone just fell down. Someone just got shot down. It's the intensity that accompanies, accompanies the, the, the aura of the time. Perhaps what it was like when you learned of something bad just happening around the corner. Yeah. That's what I feel with these sort of harsh guitar accents. It's interesting that this whole entire track is doing this from a modern perspective, from a very removed perspective. And it does that with modern instrumentation. There's not a lot very 80s about this track, I thought, and I appreciated that 100%. This was not the time to immerse yourself in, in the period. It was the time to, to see it through, through present-day eyes. And, and that, I agree that that's conveyed. And maybe I'm being too harsh on it. In fact, I probably am do, being too harsh on it because of where I see the connections to previous work here. Because there is solid lyrical work just in the describing of the series of events that someone's going through not the any of the bandmates themselves but actually uh i believe this one refers a lot to a friend of theirs that went through um one of the various bombings uh that were was going on during the 70s especially that line i don't believe anymore i don't believe anymore just the way it's sung does come across very well, but it's it's the context of what it's being done instrumentally that draws it a little bit away from me. It does have great builds, great progression for what it's doing, but this is a very impactful point of someone's life, and it just loses a little bit of the meaning because for all those guttural little interspersed parts of the guitar, mm -hmm. of the bass that come across, it seems like as a whole, it, it loses, it, it numbs a little because it feels a little bit too removed. I think that's where my main issue really is. How can you see this as being too removed when you have no, lines like... No, musically, musically, it feels a little bit too removed, a little bit too numbed. It's like a... 30 years after the war recounting. It's almost literally 30 years after the war recounting kind of an idea. But see, in my sense, see, you can't, you can't possibly... I think that's a very hard thing to re-immerse yourself in very personally. I, and, and perhaps it's almost Especially a, considering you just said it's about a friend more so than them. And, and so I mean, there is no personal connection of the experience. It's a personal connection through a friend. And then when you look at lines like, Blue Mink Ford, I'm going to detonate and you're dead. Blood in the house, blood in the street. The worst things in the world are justified by belief. Registration 1385 WZ. This is... That's this the, is, the license plate reading. This is... This is really... Cold. Cold stuff. It really is. It's... it's um, I don't know. I'm not really... 
I, I can't be swayed. In this case, I think this is the exception that proves the rule. This is a case where lyrics kind of stepped above uh, the music for me. me when, I, when, I, when I read the lyrics and the, the music itself, it's, it's linked close enough that I can accept it. I think that's, that's just it. Just close enough. I will say this is one of my favorite songs, and that line you read is one of my favorite lyrics of the album. And easily, uh, a, a, a profoundly impactful lyric: "The worst things in the world are justified by belief." That is that is a great way to sum up so much evil in this world, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit unique the way he he phrases it. But I don't know; it's just missing a little bit of a factor for me. I think that comes to down to a personal taste for this track at least because I just I'm more on board with Steve I see it from where he's coming from I think this track was a total package for the record it's not by far a perfect song but I think for this album especially it's definitely one of the biggest highlights oh yeah it definitely stands out above a lot of the rest um now we go to Cedarwood Road, um, track eight, which John mentioned uh, pre-podcast that it's actually the name of the road that Bono grew up on. Um, this one also has an interesting intro for me because it starts with a drum roll kind of freeform drum performance, which I like because the drums haven't really gotten a spotlight at this point, and they have a fantastic drummer as well, though he tends to bleed into the background a lot on the record. Um, the, the, the emotionality of the song for me, I gathered kind of some kind of violence at home maybe personal struggle at home or displacement it it comes down to just talking about how messed up his neighborhood was growing up so but with accurate with this case once again the lazy kind of singing the real breathy the vocal laid back work, vocals just kills it well it it shows a specific style which is why i guess we noticed that and the style Got certainly is not yeah, it's kind of this Western blues. Ba- Western sort of ballad. Western, Western blues. ballad, Western blues. Yeah, it's in that, in vein. that vein. I think it's definitely a blues, but it's a, it's different than the kind of blues we usually encounter because yeah. it sort of has this tall tale of, of, of hard times. It, it reaches back into the past and almost, uh, well, at least the music would almost hint that it's some kind of exaggerated tale. But the lyrics, eh, they're pretty on the nose. The, the lyrics are actually another case of I, I really enjoy them because they're not trying to hide the mystique. They're just coloring personal experience. This is just like Raised with Wolves. In it, many ways, doing a actually, great job. They at. carry along as a ballad, just as ballads really kind of just strive to tell a tale. Sleepwalking but, down the road, not not waking from these dreams, because it's never dead and it's still my head. It was a war zone in my teens. I'm still standing on that street. Still need an enemy. The worst ones I can't see. You can. You can. I, I really do enjoy that, but it's 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 kind of like he's stuck in between the the angst level of emotional presentation and the truly numb I've been through war idea of emotional presentation. He's just stuck in between. It's maybe maybe sleepwalking's a good word for it because he he's right there. He's he's not really doing one or the other, so it kind of comes across a little bit flat that way. Well. Do you see it as a montage? Maybe. A montage Maybe to some of extent, images. Because, well, I mean, there's also a lot of explanation of different aspects that made this a harsh place to live up in. I mean, just, just sort of recounting. Because in that case, the ballad is appropriate. Yeah, I think that the song structure supports the message trying to convey. Whether you like it or not, or whether you identify with it, or we think it's their best work, I think at least thematically, the, the style fits the delivery. And I also like... I hate how lazy the vocal work is, which John mentioned. I do like, however, 
the framework in which he does do the singing. I feel like he could have done more within the framework he was using. That's actually just what the point but, I was going but, to mention. But I, I still enjoyed it. I just wanted more of it. The, the, the framework is, is well, it's, it's well chosen. It's apt. The melody therein is weak. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah, okay, you choose this, this dramatic Western framework, but then you just don't go far enough with it. I mean, it's only so... So I can even only identify it as something sort of Western just from the verses themselves. And frank, frankly, once they move to the chorus, it, it's hardly that at all. So, you know, that, it's just that, that half-assed nature that I kind, of, I kind of detest as I go through varying things because it, it shows... It shows this sort of flighty personality that they were sort of, you know, whisked away by one particular, one particular vibe. And you're like, oh, yeah, I think that'd be good. But then that's about all you're willing to put into it. The rest of it is just like, oh, it's an idea from which you can just, you know, screw with it a little bit. That's not really, I think, the way, that's the way music perhaps is initially conceived. But once you're in the developing stage, you got to go further. You got to go further. You got to follow through with your idea. You got to revisit whether every single moment is actually fitting and whether it's accurate. And that's just where I think this this sort of felt flat. It it alternates between the melody in many moments during those choruses alternates between the same two notes. That's not befitting to Bono's voice. There should be more going on there. It should reach to higher places. But again, artistic theme work considering if we're seeing this montage then I guess that fits. The imagery it should be is pretty. Strong. It should be pretty downplayed. It should be like a like a black and white or or sepia tone photograph. Sepia tone for sure, I agree. Yeah, yeah, and I think that might be my biggest issue because that sepia does, for me, describe his vocals so well. Just kind of washed out. Oh well, that's, I mean, that's you mean, what in yeah. general yeah. Well, it's in the song. Okay. In this yeah. song, so, right. a, a little bit throughout the album, but definitely here. That's right. With Bono, you see a colorful painting. You don't want sepia. That's true. Yeah. If he's nothing, he's if nothing else, he's colorful as a person. Well, if you want colorful, "Sleep Like a Baby Tonight" is definitely one of the more colorful tracks on the album. So, okay. Within the intro, we are immediately get synth. We get this tech intro that's reminiscent of the Eurythmics of, of any kind of '80s synth-focused band, really. But the Eurythmics is the first one to come to mind for me. That said. It's a poor man's Eurythmics. Like, it's not bad, but you can do so much more with, yeah, with we, this one moved, instrument. We've moved beyond this many, many years ago. And it's just, it, it just has this kind, it has a nice tone, and I like the emotion it's building. Um, it, it's got this kind of uh, disparate kind of feel, but I just feel like it, it was still very plain and stripped down for a techy kind of synth intro. Gotta go back, because I had a reaction. Okay. John said it's something that we've moved beyond. I may cite many things as cliche, many, but one being that onomatopoeia that we're going back to here, which pops up all over the place, but when it comes to this sort of 80s synth work style, a lot of people, I, I, I think this has kind of become more of a joke than it's become a reality, because people like to go back to it and say that, oh, this that sound, that synth is just defined by the 80s, or the 80s are defined by that synth. I don't know, frankly to me it's getting a little bit old right now. It, it, it's a, it is definitely capturing a time that will probably never truly be captured again, only because instruments being instruments at that point, synth work being synth work, that was the prevalent sound that you could get. That was, the, was probably on every synthesizer you, you had in, at, at your disposal. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't diminish the sound. It's just one sound of, of infinity that you can use to a certain 
to a certain advantage. And I think it did sort of fit the dark, brooding mood. Or maybe brooding isn't 100% the, the right term. It's, more of, a, it's more of a dwelling kind of thing. I, I will agree. Like, I, I, I want to make it clear that I didn't think that this was played out or cliche. I just thought I had heard it done better. But that yeah. said, I agree with Steve. I do think that it, it did set a nice tone for this kind of almost heavy-handed song that's being written. The song really does speak about abuse. And, and with lines like, Why don't you dress in the colors of forgiveness? Your eyes as red as Christmas. Purple robes are folded on the kitchen chair. Hope is where the door is when the church is where the war is where no one can feel no one else's pain. There's a lot of coloration towards pretty messed up things that were happening way back when and still hit the news nowadays. If you have to, if you want to know, I'm not bringing it up because I don't like talking about stuff like this. It's messed up. But, but yeah, uh, yeah, the framework does a good job of really making this depressing scene. It, 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 it hits it to a T and works well with the lyrics. I think that you're hyper-focusing what the narrative is. I think it's a more loose jab at at this religious at a religious culture specific, to begin with. It's not no. Real. It's it, Bono comes back and supports me on this one. This is a very specific issue he's talking about. Okay. Well, if if Bono is citing that, then then that's what the song is about. That said, I think that. What gave this song some character, at least, was the way Bono delivered this, um, it wasn't really a pre-chorus, but it was like a a vocal bridge, I guess, I don't know, I'm not really sure what to call it, but he intentionally cracks his voice while delivering a few lines of the song, and I just, I I thought it was interesting to try something different, he's clearly pushing his vocals to the limit, shortening his breath to crack his voice, but I just, it it felt unprofessional. I don't know that it was. I just, I don't know. It drew my attention, so for better or for worse, it brought attention and character to the song, at least. I need to readdress this theme, because we still have a conflict here I don't think is 100% resolved. Um, what we're honing into on what we might as well just say outright is the fact, I mean, how far do you want to go with sort of the... the um, uh, the allegations, I guess, that you're making against the Catholic Church. There's some lines that you could pick up on here which would would hint towards some pretty rough things. Personally, I think it's a lot looser. Uh, if you read, I'll just read out the specific line here. Um, that's how early should I go here? Uh, do you have that line open, John? Which line? The one that specifically mentions the church or the one that mentions the purple robes that a priest would be wearing? Or the one that, uh, where's that last one? Where's that last one? Oh, the St. Francis line? There's a lot of stuff here that does make allegations towards the church. He specifically mentions... Here, okay, here's a direct quote from him. Go for it. When the church of... Uh, excuse me. When the children of any church aren't served, but are instead enslaved by an abuse of power, extraordinary acts of atonement are required to put things back together. He's specifically talking about children who were hurt by... An abuse of power. I mean, an abuse of power. That is a broad thing. Obviously, this could be interpreted as some kind of child abuse. But see, that that that's just because that the buzz that is around in everybody's heads now, because of the few 
cases that you hear in which, you know, priests have gone down that road. They're dark instances, and it was publicized, but that's really not the end of the game here. I mean, abuse of power is kind of a broad term, and frankly, when I just hear that one little reference to children in that regard, I see more of that as indoctrination. That's not necessarily sexual abuse, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't see anything in these lyrics that hint to anything but that. Indoctrination is something that very much involves the children, and I think that's really what he's honing in on here. Obviously, he has some pretty deep issues with it, and that's not to be impugned, but I don't think you should go so on the nose as to say that he's really calling out uh, sexual abuse at this stage. At this Actually, juncture, I think that's just too... He starts the, the, the statement. I'm going to... No, I'm going to argue on this one. Some can live with cruelty and abuse. Some have to. He's specifically talking about abuse of children by members of the church. I think that the, the implication, there's no other implication. Some can, some have to. I mean, that just goes, that just follows the, a lot, a lot of people who are embroidered in religion a lot of times have to grapple with the kinds of things they feel they can do as far as the religion teaches they should. Because if it's written in your religious doctrine that you have to act a certain way, then yes, that does fall under have to. Not have to because of a past incident. L look, regardless of which one he meant, because obviously he wrote the lyrics, he knows what he means, and we're, we're extrapolating based on statements and based on lyrics, it's easy to say for sure that he's got a conflict with the church. Which is why I'm comfortable and la leaving it broad. And that's all I'm arguing for. Then that's fine. We'll leave it there. John is honing in on a specific quote, which I don't think is ill-viewed either. I think that... I think that clearly Bono takes issue with some of the abuse that have been done to children in, in the church, and of course you should. But I think let's just keep it at this fact that Bono is not happy with the church as it stands. That's, now. that's what I'm and, arguing for. And, and, I like to keep it broad, though. And, and well, but getting hyper specific isn't necessarily a bad thing either. But either way, for the sake of moving on through the song, this 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 offense with the church comes through emotionally in the song. This eerie kind of disturbed sound that this song plays really supports this issue he has. However, the song should have ended probably a minute earlier than it did. It drags out at the end. It trails off. It falls apart, and not in a good way like a, a intricate deconstruction. It was just, it just seemed a lazy ending, and and, and while I understand the note he's trying to convey, I just was unentertained by the end. But again, he's conveying this heavy-handed message of his issue with the church, so it could be argued that's intentional, but I don't buy it. That's I, why I think this sort of broad message is really supported. And I, I, I mean, it, when you consider it broad, it's, it's not like that really detracts in any way, because in fact, that incorporates a lot more. I mean, for instance, just that, that return to the court. Hope is, uh, excuse me, that's the, um, that's the bridge. Hope is where the door is, when the church is where the war is, where no one can feel no one else's pain. Pretty harsh words right there. Now, especially that hope is where the door is when the church is where the war is, sort of speaks against not just indoctrination, but also the manner that once you are indoctrinated, then you're, you're immersed in this, in this stage where, where the church has basically instilled in you this, this hyper-defensiveness, a hyper-defensiveness that may lead you to bad things in the future. So, that, I mean, obviously people, of course, will cite many instances in history, of course, where the church has, you know, the Crusades, all these different instances where where it has been the cause of war. Religious war is, is you know, 
Well, they cause, and also religion has been the cause of social wars too. So, you know, not necessarily with weapons, but with words. There's exactly. still warring fronts that way too. So when that's the thing, I guess, that's sort of backing you, then that's, that's, it's bound to sort of blow up at some point. I kind of wish you didn't go into this explanation because you're starting to turn me on your belief because now I'm finding the song less impactful Okay, that, that's actually fine. actually going a little more vague. Uh, yeah, it could be just the. F- There's another way I could I could see looking at it as the Irish idea, of uh, the Irish Catholic Church call to arms to fight against the rest of Ireland, like fight your own people. That's just how it's going. I, but here's the problem, that to me ha- has a lot less meaning. Well, uh, in the long haul, like it's it it removes a lot of the personal gripping for me. That just trades out there. one thing for another. It's, it's just, I think neither argument supports the song very well. I also, I to, also am personally tired of this whole recurring, uh, you know, ca- um, sexual abuse, I guess, allegation, only because people are hypersensitive about it now. Yeah. Not to say that it hasn't happened, but it's really a hypersensitive issue that I, I tend to have a, a well, reservation okay. when I see it in a, in a lyric and presented. So, killing this actual argument, because it, we're going to start going around the circles. To sum this up, I got bored with the beat. So did I. The song just dragged out way too long. It yeah, it way too low down on the scale. It was what it comes so down far, to... Eh, it it would, would have been exciting if they had done something a little bit more inventive towards the end of it to make it dark and mysterious or make it lighthearted. I don't know. Well, the one thing that no lends... Conclusion. One thing that lends to the dark and mysterious nature, interestingly enough, is when they go really, really high. That was that falsetto that you noted, Matt. And I believe that was on that specific line. Hope is where yes. the door is. Yes. Uh, when the church is where the war is. It's a very extreme falsetto where it, it feels broken. It feels like, like his breath has just fallen out from under him when he's singing at the top of his lungs like that. And it that's sort of like this never-ending battle that I think I find somewhat more appealing in this track, even though it continues repeating like this, because that repetition kind of supports the never-ending nature of it. And it comes back to that single line, you're gonna sleep like a baby tonight, the title of the track. Keeping t- keeps telling you, religion obviously will keep telling, well, everything is gonna be okay. For instance, that old adage, well, just have faith, we'll just have faith. It, it shows an issue with that with that side, how how that can almost be a nulling, a, a, a nulling mantra. And while I'll agree, and the song that, reflects it. And while I'll agree that that moment is impactful on a broader level, while that moment is impactful, it happens two minutes before the end of the song, or three minutes before the end of the song, and then like the song. No, but see, in this case, I find it pointed because that's just a moment that sort of brings to light the rest of the song by continuing as it does and remaining repetitive. So then you're saying it's an artistic support for the theme of the song. In this case, I think it's a strong one. I'm I'm starting to back this a lot more now because of that. I just don't agree, but that's fine. I don't have to. I just think for me it wasn't enough. I think that art, great, but the song itself musically bored me, and that wasn't enough to keep me engaged. Well, normally, I don't defend the art so wholeheartedly in this instance, but in this case, I don't know. That's kind of strong. When you're talking about like these never-ending battles, I felt nulled, and I felt nulled in that same oddball, very, very dark, wary sense. Like I should beware of a certain thing. Okay, I mean that's a that's a fair uh, point for for the song. I just, I don't know. I guess it just didn't impact me as much as you did. That's all. Yeah, it, it's the kind of thing that grows in you after a certain point, I guess. Interestingly, as growing off of you, it grows on you. I like things that sort of make you a little bit perturbed. This song did that. There you are. <laughs> okay, on to This Is Where You Can Reach Me Now, Trek 8. 
Um, this is track I, 10, no, I not take this, track 8. Track 10. Oh, excuse me. Math. 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 Whoops. This is... A song a of nice... inspiration and moving forward. No. Oh. This is... No, this is... It didn't come off as that sort of an idea because, well, you're getting a, a summer cha-cha kind of jammy feel to it. This it's more like an indoctrination piece because it's talking about soldier, soldier. We signed our lives away. Complete surrender, the only weapon we know. They're devoting themselves to something here, but it comes off a little bit, a little bit heavier than that. Yeah, but the heaviness is is backed by a tropical feel, a marching beat, and a very funky bass. And keeps I think- it it keeps it lighthearted, which means I, I'm not lost on the idea. Well, and also the idea behind indoctrination, which Steve was saying is before with the last track, you can be indoctrinated very two, two very different ways, either by a nulling repetition or by a masking. And I feel like this song is that kind of an indoctrination if we're talking about the soldier, soldier bit, and that it's more making it sound lighter so it doesn't seem as serious. And it definitely musically does have a more tropical... Steve said it was almost a Caribbean vibe. It was missing steel drums and a few other things, but it had an almost reggae sound. Well, I think that's just because, I mean, the, to speak to the lighthearted air, this is just a, a, it's sort of an ironic twist on the call to arms. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, you can achieve a lot with just that. And the music but, supports it, I feel. Yeah. But, I don't know, in this particular case, though, I wasn't, like, roused in any way. So no. This, and I, did, I wasn't perturbed in any way. And maybe it's the fact that this was harmless is that I couldn't appreciate the irony. So it goes to show that it goes both ways. But for me, this was, this was to a much lesser degree. This one, yeah, it doesn't really deviate from that first little beat idea. Again, it stays safe. It stays in one area. It stays in the realm that uh, they seem to just enjoy a little bit too much at this point in the of their album once they come up with that first melody that first riff it's stable it's that safe zone everything gets built on top of that but i mean there was quite a lot of there was quite a lot of texture in here to start i thought but again it reaches that plateau that's it yeah and here's one place where i'm i'm just just completely pissed that the bridge is at the end because the bridge got good the bridge became very enjoyable Texture, texture wasn't even the thing. It was actually building. Once again, deletes it right towards the end. Goes into vo- chorus, exits. Yeah. Done. The, the... I'm tired of it at this point. At I was actually getting pissed because of this idea of you have to do the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, ver- uh, chorus, outro. I'm so upset at this idea. Uh, I didn't get as upset, but I definitely agree that it was enough already. They they followed this this format through, I'd safely say, at least 80% of the album. And there are other ways to end songs. I mean, you know, they're capable of so much more. And for them to just end these songs the same way over and over again is just a bummer. But that said, it wasn't enough for me to dislike what I was hearing. I, I, I enjoyed it. I would agree with Steve that it wasn't so impactful that I was blown away by this track. That happened earlier. But I did enjoy it. It was entertaining and it was fun. Um, and that was probably mostly due to the bass work, which was very unique for this song. But It was not... entertaining for the first minute and a half for me. I think that's what it comes down to. When you completely repeat the same exact idea with minute deviation, it's just, it's not going to hold my attention. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's certain lines in here that I want to say are oblique to a slightly intriguing sense, but it's one of those instances where the music doesn't even really make me want to get into it. I mean, if a summer jam is a summer jam, well then... And I know this is very commonly done, because very often, very lighthearted things have this sort of ironic twist to it that you expect to kind of look very deeply into it. But a lot of times, that's sort of a, a, a cagey disconnect that I find a little bit disconcerting. Very often, I just like those particular cases to be on the nose, because obviously they would be more effective if they were on the nose. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it sort of track. If you want to enjoy it as one, well, then do that. If you want to enjoy it as the other, well, then you're going to need to sort of come at this a different way. But then again, even that in itself is, I guess, a, a perk to a track if it offers you two, two avenues from which to um, enjoy. enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um... I guess from here we'll take it to our uh, our final track. The final track of the record is called The Troubles. Um, hands down, easily to guess, a summation track, which emotionally was not too far-fetched to figure out. Very melancholy, almost smooth in tone and texture. Um, the Troubles. Yeah. That's, like, a, that's so predictable. That sounds like Stephen King's next novel. I'm putting it out there. <laughs> Actually, um, what's the name of that science fiction show? It's a science fiction show where all the people who have these weird, not really useful superpowers are have what's called the quote troubles. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's got that about. really cute blonde. Is that Haven? Yeah, that's it. Oh. Yeah, yep, that's it. Mm. I remember. Um, back <laughs> to the music. This song, I mean, has a finality to it. I mean, blah blah blah, cliche things we say about tracks, which I'm trying to avoid. But it does really have a finality. It really does feel like it's a summation track, kind of trying to wrap up. It, it boils things. down to as like a, you hurt me, I will go on. But I want to take a moment here, since I'm going to do my wrap up <laughs> last. So many of those final tracks. It, it, it's gonna, it's gonna. Since I'm going to be the last one to do my wrap up, I want to get this out first because I think it's really important about this track. And if you guys have more to add on the track after this, feel free. But at, at this summation point, I've kind of had an issue with this album. So we've done a few personal albums on this. Actually, you know what? I'm going to save this discussion for when I do my wrap up. I think it's more appropriate. So going back to the song. Sorry to jump around. I think the chorus groove is okay. I like that the, the other vocalist singing, it sounds like a female vocalist. It's definitely not Bono singing in the choruses, which I like. It's a nice change because Bono's pretty much done all of the singing on this record. Um, I couldn't even really tell if there was any background vocals. If they were, they probably were just him doubling himself. But this seemed to have another vocalist singing the choruses, which I really liked. It gave a perspective and kind of a tone to the whole song that really supported the the feeling of the troubles but beyond that musically it wasn't something super inventive it, it 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 if you if i tell you this song is a summation song that sounds somewhat melancholy smooth and very final i'm pretty sure you can picture what it sounds like pretty easily without me even mentioning instruments i'll i'll go one step further than that and that's only to mention that this has some little character to it. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna go so so baseline because there's some things in here that you couldn't predict just based on that criteria you gave, and that's the the strings, for instance. The strings have these kind of okay. kind of pleasing glissandi, just as these little slides here and there that sort of come across as sounding rather oriental, sort of as you'd hear from uh, from that well-known Chinese traditional instrument, the erhu. Yes. And I mean, as New Yorkers, we commonly see it in subways but obviously it has a richer tradition than that in a case it comes across as sounding rather exotic in that in that way beyond that 
actually maybe including that, I, I think um, I heard another little influence in here, or, or just incidental crossover, and that was to the gorillas. I thought that there was actually a little vibe in the overall sense of this track, and maybe it had to do with those little strings, those little glissandos in the background. I, I, I heard a little bit of gr gorillas in this. Maybe that was a modern influence. Maybe it was just them trying to be experimental. But frankly, that added that some f color. It doesn't it seem that far out of the realm. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, songs like Melancholy Hill, Up on Melancholy Hill, has this kind of vibe to it, and so I could easily see that comparison for this song, at least. Yeah. Even a couple of the tra yeah, some of the stuff from Demon Days definitely could have could have had this what same that song sort of is from. No, I'm, I'm talking the album as a whole. There's oh, a little yeah. bit there and there that can kind of fit this feel. Obviously, I only but, mean influence in as much as, you know, they're probably not blind to the modern world. Right, obviously. Well, it, uh, <laughs> do you want to go first, Steve? Um, do you have anything uh, on your mind specifically? It's, it's funny, because I'm actually eager to go first, and I'm not. You have the choice. You do yeah, have the choice. Yeah, yeah you do always. We have, but no, we have to keep true. with tradition. I, I, I want to I'll go. With okay. Okay, I'll go. Okay. Um... <laughs> what can you say about U2 that hasn't been said about U2? Everybody has at one point loved or hated them. Have we at this or juncture both. really gone through the whole thing about, about this being a free album? <coughs> Did you really, like... Okay, no, we're going to yes. talk about that a little bit more. Maybe not well if enough. If you want to. Uh, I did. I explained it perfectly, and last week also I conveyed it. Okay, Let's we're going to go into it again. No, no, stop. It's, it's important. Stop. We're going to go into this now because there is a rumor, and it's a pretty substantial rumor, that U2 did not release this for free. That Apple released this for free, and that U2 made $100 million. So if you want to talk about that aspect, we have to wait to see if it was actually sold to Apple from U2, of which we're going to have a very different conversation than if you two just released it for free. I didn't even just mean it for that. The only reason I was going to bring it up is not just because, you know, who got the money in the end. It's really about the fact that it is a free album. Is sort of like, you can't really treat this, and I know we generally don't include this in our reviews, the, uh, um, the, well, go out and buy it kind of thing. It was more of an afterthought we were doing, you know, at a certain point during these reviews, we'd kind of throw that in. But in general, these are more analysis just about the music period. But if you were taking this as a review, if you interpret what we do as reviews because we do slap a number on it in the end, well then, you know, this make, this, this, there's a slight irrelevancy here just because of the free album thing. But it's not free to everybody. It's only free to people who have iTunes, and a lot of people don't have but iTunes But iTunes well. is free. Okay. It's free no, wait, to wait, download. Wait, wait, wait. Here is a great reason why it to be free, and it's going to fit into my so review. No, no, no. It's going to fit into my review. Because this does not feel like U2 is making an album. It feels like they're knocking on our door saying, hey guys, guess what? We're back. Here's an idea of what we're going to do. Not here's what we're doing, but here's an idea. It feels like your neighbor is just checking in as opposed to actually telling you what they did on their vacation. All right? There's, there's no substance here that lets me really delve into a story outside of three tracks. For the most part, it's just like, oh, yeah, no, we went fishing. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, no, it, it was, yeah, no, got up early, stayed up late. It, there's nothing that I'm sinking my teeth into, especially, especially in the beginning of this album. It's maintaining the status quo idea of what U2 is so that you're remembered. Because there's one big thing we did not talk about this. This is a two-part kind of concept album. Because the first one is... Songs of Innocence. The second one is going to be Songs of Experience. It'd be this... funny if they charge double for that one. 
These are drawn directly from a. Uh, these ideas are drawn directly from uh, a piece by William Blake back 130 years ago. I, I spent a long time trying to figure out where I heard this before, but William Blake wrote and illustrated Songs of Innocence and Experience, which is. Blake himself was quite the the romantic, contemporary, visionary type of a guy. Uh Real big, not appreciated during his time, but later on, hallmarked as a guy who created whole genres of ideas. I mean, I would compare him to, like, Milton when when you talk about impact in how people think and everything like that. In the romantic movement. In the romantic movement. Uh, 1790s. That's like on the cusp, right, right before, yeah. but... So they're already speaking... literary to, was there, there's, yeah. there's already another part of this idea coming out. This was from the get-go. As soon as we got this album, we knew there was another part coming out. Hey, but it's been it kept on... got to reveal yeah, something else. Yeah, no, this might be like an Uno Dos type of a thing going on here. I hope it's not. I hope they actually do something completely different with experience. We'll see where experience goes. But if you stick with that theme work of Songs of Innocence and Experience and the idea of what Blake did... To some extent, it's kind of what they did here. Blake's idea for Innocence was it's just talking about the naivety of a child and what it's like to go through life. This feels like the naivety of a child making an album. It's good at parts because even children can have inspirational ideas, even adolescents, teenagers, young adults, can have inspirations of great ideas and put them to pen and paper and make something awesome. And these short little bursts are... are Raised by Wolves, Our Volcano, Our Sleep Like a Baby Tonight. Because even though I kind of hated on them at times, they were still pretty good songs. As far as a pop song goes, as far as the structure that they created goes, they're pretty good. But pretty good is as good as it's going to get because there's so much here that you could just see adolescence just pouring through. Just simple ideas just coming out, pouring through. And there's no deviation from the formula. This is my biggest issue. Verse, of course, verse, chorus, bridge, uh, chorus, outro. Screw that. No. U2 is not, not the same band they've been for the last 30 years. You don't have to stay the same. But this turn of events that they've done here, this just reaffirming what people have been complaining about for the past decade and more, I can't get on board with. This is this is a 275. This is below your standard level. And the only reason why it's close to a 3 is because there's some stuff here content-wise that at least they're going for. There's some songs here that content-wise, that production-wise have something to them that really do make them specifically good at parts, but oh my god, there's just so much chaff thrown in the middle, I can't I can't enjoy it. Hey, chaff can hurt you. Um, okay. Well, actually, I mean, you were not too far off on this, although I will take issue with a couple of things, only because mm, when you're talking about this album being the kind of album that just... Checking in from vacation, were those your words? Yeah. yeah. Your neighbor checking in from vacation. Neighbor checking in from vacation. The problem with that part of your statement does not entirely match with the latter half of your statement, which is this being the kind of album that it is, Songs of Innocence. It is, and this is where I agree with you, it is, yes, this reflection on the naive child. I see all that. Um, there's a lot of stuff that he dealt with. I can acknowledge that. And I think this album conveys that pretty well. 
in that sense, this, even though I find projects like this to be a little redundant, I mean, you know, <laughs> I kind of broached this a little bit last week when I was talking about My Brightest Diamond, just in the same sense that you define a personal album, and this being such a a, a, a heavy-handed concept, this is about me, this incorporates every part of me, well, I almost... I'm almost a little bit as turned off from that concept, even as many great things as you can do with it. I'm almost a little turned off from that concept as I am from the, the well, let me look back at my childhood kind of thing. But I suppose it's inevitable. It's inevitable not just for an artist, but it's inevitable for a human being to get to that point. And even though, thank God, we're not all, uh, we're not all Holden Caulfield, and we're not all, um, uh, J.D. Salinger writing about Holden Caulfield because thank God that was his the only book because I personally can't stand revisiting that topic over and over and over again. I suppose it's inevitable in any prolific artist's work to encompass every part of life. In that sense, I'll defend this project and I'll also compare it against a project that was very similar and that was Green Day's Uno Dos Trey. That was a little bit less on the nose because that also incorporated some other things. But it had some similar features. For instance, a lot of the, the ode songs, for instance, like the one to his daughter and whatnot. And several of the tracks there were less thematically trying to look to the past than they were just musically trying to look to the past. And obviously we didn't rate those very highly because they two really just did not go full force with either one. And when you took that into account combined with the fact that the music couldn't really support it, it just left me with a very blasé work. In which case, that was probably a lot more akin to checking in from vacation and reminding uh, the world of their existence. In this particular case, we have some more things going for it. For instance, it hones in on some pretty hard issues of the past. Stuff that was either too fresh at the time, too, perhaps too fresh to write about at the time, and I'm not saying Ward didn't hone in on it, but this is a little bit different in the way that it approaches the subject. It does, it does add a little bit of wisdom, and I see this in the lyrics. I didn't say in every track, for instance, we omitted the tracks in which, it, it, in which we really don't see it. Tracks where it tries to kind of set the, uh, the field, where you're back at that time, going through it, and seeing it through a naive child's eyes. And then we have some other tracks which kind of try to pepper in little little doses or little twists of the way he sees it now as, as reflections of how he saw it then. It's not much, but it's a little more than Green Day gave it for. And then there is the music, which is the real big thing. There are music, there are tracks here which fully represent the time frame and fully represent those instances in their in their aura. They're not breaking boundaries with this. They're not they're not going to different genres in this direction. They're not stopping to be U2 and then in the instances where they do stop to be U2, it's a little bit of a question mark in your head. There's really not a uniform sound to this album, but frankly, considering where they've been lately, that's that's this that's this album's big perk. And that's where I think it saves, uh, they've saved themselves from probably a lot of the, the critiques that they inevitably were going to get from YouTube fans, which is to say, stop giving me albums of the same exact thing. This signature YouTube sound has been done to death, and as much as we have, may have loved it in its, in its origins, it just, it, it has grown a little bit dated, because post-rock is a 
burgeoning field from which more things have 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 come and bands who aren't afraid to to sort of explore other areas and escape that tried and true framework but with that framework they do different things they explore different auras and then we still have bono's vocals which are pretty strong on almost every track some are a little lesser because of the melodies but when you add this all together this hovers around average but i still am gonna have to agree with john that it doesn't quite reach average i think this is it's not just a hair behind but i'll put it a little bit more than john i'll give it a 2.8 I have many issues with this record, but a lot of them have been stated already. And in the sake of brevity and not repeating ourselves, I'll just leave you with this. Steve mentioned that we've had a lot of personal records. Um, to name a few, My Brightest Diamond, St. Vincent, uh, Beyonce. These are all artists who made very, very personal records. The Uno Trilogy which sounds dumb every time I say it. These are all artists who tried to make personal records. Some succeeded, some failed. I think the person who succeeded at making it the most personal was probably Beyonce, just because you could tell she pretty much opened a van on the record and let you in. Whether the quality was at that point is irrelevant if you're judging it as a personal work and how accurate it was. She was clearly fed up with, with cliches of the record industry and decided to do what she felt, not what was required of her. And I respect that. Um, which is why I rated that album the way I did. This record, Bono keeps you at arm's length. Even though he's looking back at his past, he never really lets you in. There are a few moments, like Raised by Wolves and Volcano, he really does let you in. You get a better, better look. But most of the other songs, it's he's keeping you at arm's length and he's not really letting you in. And that's where an emotionally impactful album loses steam. Um, musically, I agree with Steve, it's... Some of it's really cool. Some of it's really average. Some of it's below average. Um, I don't know that I'm as hard on it as John is, but John, in the past, has come as a fan of longer artists, had some spite and vengeance, which is not unreasonable because I've treated albums the same way. I gave that kind of vitriol to Bare Naked Ladies, who I was horribly disappointed with and incredibly upset by. Um, I've been so unemotionally invested in U2 for the past decade that honestly I agree with Steve's point that this was kind of refreshing, that there was at least some semblance of variety, not as much as I'd like, not as much as their past works, like their older works, but more variety than I was possibly expecting. Um, so it's hard for me to hurt it for that, especially if this songs of experience that re they release and will be hilarious if they charge double for. <laughs> um, it could lead into something really great. And I'm really hoping that this new U2 record, which we will review because I'm kind of, I kind of really want to see where it goes. Um, I'm hoping it does go somewhere. Um, but it just, it doesn't hit the mark as far as engaging. However, I do like it than the last two pieces of trash that they released. Um, and I don't care that I'm calling U2 albums piece of trash. As a music reviewer, I can be that blunt. Whether you agree or not is your prerogative, and I love and hope you will comment and explain why your view is correct. We look for that. But it's below average, which is barely, and it's because mostly the repetitive, repetitive and terrible guitar solos, I just, the Edge is such a talent, and he's done such great work. That was the biggest bottom-outer for me, because there was emotional stuff to get by, Bono's, Bono's 
Most of Bono's vocal delivery was fantastic, as it usually is. It's what you expect from him. He was only lazy on a couple tracks. But musically, this let me down. And emotionally, it was too predictable. And again, I still felt like I, they wouldn't let me in, you know. I think that's also why I love that Beyonce record so much. I got absorbed by it. What she was singing about, what she felt, I felt it. It was powerful. It was palpable. There was very few things here that were palpable. And that's a big problem emotionally. So it's a 2.95 because I enjoy the record and there's some stuff where I shamelessly enjoy it but ultimately there's still some average record I would go back to other records before this for sure uh, that we've reviewed uh, and a lot of them even the average ones because there's more content to enjoy on a whole than I got from this that said I'm grateful we reviewed it and I actually look forward to songs of experience to see Maybe they are a bit more experienced and they give us a, more of what they were giving us a taste of here. Or very simply, it was a conscious effort in order to show their their naive, weaker sides back-to-back -back with the sides that they obviously broke out. Yeah. Um, we shift gears now here a bit. It's just funny because I feel like this is a long topic and I don't know that we'll give it justice, but let's dive in. Steve mentioned anthemic songs before. Anthemic pop. So... Anthemic pop irks me as a genre because here, here. for me, the anthem is an important song, especially in my teenage development. There were bands that weren't great, but were great at delivering anthemic songs that I really got into, like Blink-182, Good Charlotte, a lot of pop punk did the young anthem very well. But I cited an artist earlier who I think really delivered an anthem very beautifully. And it's a recent release within the last, I think, three or four years. It's a song called Different by Dr. Awkward. And what I like about the song is he, the song is structured like a gangster rap song, but the rhythm and beats he uses is based on a Pac-Man song that he structures beautifully. Pac-Man? Pac-Man. <laughs> and what I really like is that the video shot for it is also shot like a typical gangster rap video, except like a scene where he pulls up and pulls out a Nintendo zapper like he's gonna shoot someone, and then he hands them a Nintendo. Or it shows a bunch of guys in That's hoodies pretty... standing outside something, rapping to the camera, and then they pull back, and it's a GameStop with a sign that flips that says sold out, and he drops to his knees and goes, no. Or, like, there are cuts of him in a... a well, these... in a, there's, okay. there's one more. There's cuts of him in a Lamborghini. Rocking out, grooving. It turns out he's in a parked Lamborghini in the dealership and a woman grabs him by the ear and drags him out what i like is that he treats the anthem and and turns it on its head a bit in the video but still makes a great song that you can get behind and feel rallied by and that's just not common anymore all of it is that cheesy anthemic pop well here's it's the not, interesting no, 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 thing no, wait, based wait, wait, on wait, wait. all of that it's is that you refer to it as a genre anthemic pop as a genre and that's that's the real beef yeah is that the second you genreify it you diminish everything that it has to offer. Yeah. The second you're you're constantly bombarded by it, then there is no singular moment of of the the revealing anthem. The best anthems are the ones that are not intended to, to be, be an anthem. anthem. And that song you described did it's not very intend. Person. Very no, 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 personal. No, 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 no. That did not intend to be an anthem. Not by your description. Yeah. It intended to be him explaining himself. Yes. Okay, so how is that an anthem? You made it an anthem. Perfect example of a song that kind I guess they kind of wanted it to be an anthem, but it, it took on a life of its own is the ever classic The Who. We will rock you, we are the champions. That's not The Who, that's Queen. Oh, that Queen. Oh, fuck. Hurt. Oh, sorry, we're going to have to bleep that. 
<laughs> the queen, we are the... Uh, we will rock you, we, we are, are the, the champions. champions. Oh, good grief. Um, <laughs> yeah, we will rock you is, is set up to be an anthem. But we are the champions is as integral a part of that song. Not because they go back to back, side by side, together. Still on the radio, you play them together. You can't do anything but. It's because... We Are the Champions is the rallying cry to We Will Rock You. People made it that way. When it was produced, when it was first heard, it resonated with so many that it became uh, the argument for a a generation. Not just an anthem, but the rebuttal to something, to something that they didn't quite understand at the time. It took on a life of its own. That's what an anthem can do. Well, I think that Steve's right. And actually, that's the point I really want to make, and I think we're all going to be on agreement, so maybe this topic will be quite quick. But the fact that there's a genre called anthemic pop, as a friend of yours dubbed it, is pathetic. It is stupid, and it is because it cheapens actual songs that are anthems for people. Anthem is something you apply to yourself, and John's absolutely right. The reason I feel that different is an anthem is because while he's describing why he's a different kind of rapper, it allows me to express why I feel I'm a different kind of person based on similar things that he expresses. And that's what a true anthem does. You find a personal point within a song that's broad. And these anthems, this anthemic pop, is fabricated, here's an anthem, sing with us. It's exactly. the worst. Exactly. And this is, you know, it's funny because I brought up the Beatles before. I brought up, I brought up Hey Jude, which has yeah. that, that, that long outro, which obviously, and this is the one, one thing I'm going to slightly disagree with, I don't think the best or necessarily the, um, I do believe you can go into it with that, that, that notion, yes, sing with us, but you can't do it all the time. Yeah. You have to do it just very sparingly. It is all about context. That, out, that track is the kind of track that if you had heard it for the first time, and it's obviously very difficult for us to take our, ourselves out of our, our shoes at this juncture because we've heard it a billion times, but if we had heard it for the first time, which we all did once, then you really don't expect it. You don't expect it when it comes. It's this slow ballad that seems like it should almost just drift away. Or like this should be maybe a, maybe a little fade out just from the final verse, or maybe just a, a solemn final few chords, and then it just... It just, it just dies out, that, that perfect final little Paul McCartney chord. But instead, you get this sort of, this sort of final, final rallying cry to, to accompany this Jude character, which you know so little about at this point, but yet you somehow, you somehow feel for you him. You understand him. You you've emote towards him. Exactly. You feel him. There's a connection. Exactly. And it spent four minutes building in that direction before you could finally... Rally with these onomatopoeia, which means nothing. Nah, 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 nah. But it it means something after the Beatles. And Beatles did this very rarely. There's not too many songs. And even though lots of people think about the Beatles, and in that case, that that does speak to your point, where most of the songs they wrote did not intend to be anthem-like songs, but people somehow sing along to every Beatles song imaginable. Well, that was a clear accident, a, a nice happy accident. But... Within that, they really only intended just a small handful to be that rallying cry song that brings with you in, come sing with us. And Hey Jude is certainly one of them. There's a few others. For instance, All You Need Is Love is one of them. And that's only because it surrounds a very, very simple, pure message. So these things are kind of like once-in-a-lifetime things. You can't reproduce this every single track like many modern anthemic pop bands try to. And it's not to say that they go into it saying, we're going to be anthemic pop. But it's so clear. 
it's so apparent that it's a pop tactic to just, you know, it's the kind of thing that's been proven true in the past, so why not just do it on every single track? And sadly to say, uh, it might be winning. But that's, because that, people but, are sheep. But that's why I, I think also... I would my my final point would be though is there is one band that does do going into it like I would agree I would say that like bands we've reviewed in the past like One Republic they're not looking for that it's worked out that way they know it's a cliche that they can kind of work but they're not geared for it fun the band they do it in every song every single song I agree it's not an accident they're the problem I find more it starts with them this is why the word manufactured exists it's not just to be pretentious and stand on a pedestal it's because clearly. It, it <laughs> clearly you're looking for the substance within all this onomatopoeia, mm. all these all these loud drums. I remember it was it was episodes and episodes ago that we read that statistic about how music is just getting louder and louder and louder. Kind of like it's trying to just sort of cloud up the fact that the detail is absent, the detail is yeah. lost, and things are always intensified mm-hmm. by being louder. And that's just what you get when you just have a repeating drum pattern over and over and yeah. over and over and over again. Single beat, single loud beat, usually on a kick drum, the loudest drum possible, the most impactful drum possible. Everything just bellows. And that's the only thing that they're striving for. And Calm it's down. it's very apparent by that. Calm down. It's very apparent. You were getting intense there. Fair enough. Um, but that I sentence, did, I did to notice... be completed, it's very apparent two-thirds into your album that that's the only goal your your artist has. Well, yeah. there there's also seems to be a little bit of a connection towards bands that uh, go for like an arena or stadium-oriented sound, arena rock, arena pop, that sort of stuff, and this whole attempt at anthem yeah, work. But... Because there's nothing so awesome from both an artistic point of view and from sales records of... Getting you know fifteen thousand people to sing the same chanting thing along. With yeah, it. but not just not just saying. But I would argue chanting and but, going. but I would argue that's that brainwashing in my book. But, but I would argue is. that stadium rock bands like ACDC and Aerosmith they accomplish that without making anthems. They accomplish it by just making repetitive courses that are very catchy and that hook pretty easily. And well, that's why it's I think a full a band separate. a band like that like ACDC is a, incidentally a st- a, no 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 is incidentally an arena. Band, because their music is um, is was not meant for that setting. I'm talking about bands that try to sell out shows and things like that. I mean, I'm I'm going to be a little harsher in that department because I don't think they're necessarily exempt. Especially, maybe not in their earlier work. I'm saying exempt. I'm just saying it's not their goal. Well, I I know I actually think that at some point it became their goal because if it proved true in the past, then why not just keep doing the same thing? It's good from a marketing standpoint. That's fair. I think what we're all really trying to say is that the fact that a, 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 a genre like anthemic rock existing, the fact that it was even coined or said or breathed, breathed, whatever, is sad as far as I terrible. know. And it could be more. It could have been coined elsewhere, but it was coined by my friend James just the other day. Hello, so James. we'll we'll credit him, but we're we're the ones that are putting it to the masses. So fair enough. There's that, which is um, nice. Take um, away, you take it away from James. <laughs> I would like to take us in a direction. Where we rarely go, but we're going today. Um, I wanna, I wanna talk to Jose for a minute. If you're listening, um, I got a wonderful email because I curate, I mostly curate the admin email address for Crash Chords, and uh, sometimes you can feel like you're throwing stuff out into the ether with podcasting. And we got an email from a guy named Jose who told us how he'd been listening for for about a year on and off, and really likes the way we talk. And I, I, I'm really appreciative of this email that we got because 
Well, it's the, it's one of the first more in depth emails that we got. It was got. a long email, and he went into quite a, quite a lot of depth about why he likes us and why 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 he listens to the podcast and and even gave us an album suggestion, which we're going to get to as well. Um, we don't we haven't gotten a lot. We in the gag that the spam box is our email. It has been a fun gag for over two years, but we're actually starting to get some fan response like Heather earlier. And so I want to honor Jose's warm response to us by giving him a warm reply over the airwaves as well as we did on um, via email. So I'd like Steve at this point to take over by first reading us Jose's email to us. Yes. Not that I'm betraying the spam, of course, because I don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. Dear Crash Chords Podcast. I've been listening to your musical dissections of albums on and off for about a year now, and I've noticed you guys mostly talk about well-known albums. I can't say that's exclusively what you fellows discuss, because I haven't listened to all of your episodes as of yet. Yet, I find the intelligent chemistry and argument etiquette between you all very appealing, and it makes me come back for more. There's this track from an album I found on a whim through a cartoon called Symbiotic Titan, and I found it to be an absolute gem of an album. It's titled Ohio, by brackets Daryl. I'm hoping you'll look into it and consider it something worthy of discussion, and perhaps also discuss some albums you like that not many people in general know of. Thanks for taking the time to read this email. Name's Jose, but I mostly go by Knockjaw on the web. Music is life, and life is good. Thank you very much, Jose. Obviously, I sent this uh, directly to you in email, but I'll, I'll, I'll respond uh, directly right here on the podcast. Thank you for your honest feedback. We always appreciate listeners who reach out to us and comment on the discussion process. People like you, whose interest in music analysis and appreciation for argument etiquette when confronting as nebulous a topic as art, are exactly who we're trying to reach. Glad you're enjoying the format. In regards to our album choices, we aim for a healthy variety, taking into account factors like genre, popularity, and potential correlating topics. This does frequently include a desire to address the media buzz circling more mainstream albums and to discuss whether these heavily marketed products are worth the vindication. And this week's episode, which we just completed, is definitely an example to that effect. Our album choices may also correlate with the mainstream due to our requirement that listeners have access to a free stream of the album. For instance, albums available on Spotify, the world's most popular streaming platform, are always preferable because we can link them in the post. Bandcamp and SoundCloud links are also acceptable. Regardless, there's still such an eclectic array of albums out there in the ether of these platforms that you're quite right, we've barely scratched the surface. Obviously, the Crash Course Podcast archive is the easiest way to browse through our existing episodes and check to see if there's something less recognizable to you. If not, let's hope the next hundred proves more varied. As to your album suggestion, Ohio by Daryl, we see it in Spotify, so you'll be added in the queue. We should get to the album by the end of October, and you'll be notified the week prior. Plenty of thanks for the comments and suggestion. So, um, I get wordy. <laughs> yes, a little bit, um, which is why I wanted you to respond to the email. Um, but, but in short, thank you, Jose. We, we like to know that people are listening and enjoying because I mean, we like doing it for ourselves too, but it's nice to know that people are enjoying it as well. Um, and it means a lot to someone who created this from nothing three years ago or more that people are actually paying attention and listening. You know, it's important to us. It's, it's nice to know that the job we've imposed upon ourselves is is actually doing something. 
is actually taking root and other people are recognizing it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. And, to, uh, and we're getting and now that we're getting um more uh, more suggestions for album reviews, which we also appreciate because we obviously don't mind promoting various things. Promoting a, is half the game. I want to take a moment again to thank Heather as well, who reached out to us from Twitter, and also to publicly on this podcast thank Shauna as well, uh, the publicist from Pavement Entertainment, who set me up with many an interview for my other podcast, the Crash Chords Autographs, which I've interviewed four people from that label, and I think I'm going to interview more as we go. Um, it means a lot when people like what we do and reach out, and uh, we always look to expand in any way we can. Um, speaking of expansion, we're bringing on a brand new guest, which we like bringing back the old favorites, but we also like bringing on new ones. And we have a new guest for you next week. Um, her name is Rashmi. She's a musician I met through the Way Station. Um, she's uh, local to New York. Um, and she's a wonderful musician, singer, songwriter, and she's bringing us A Blast from the Past. The album that she wants to review with us, which I have no doubt is an inspiration to her, is Madonna's album True Blue, which is, you gotta go back a little bit for that one, but um, but Classic Madonna should be fun to dig into, so that's what we will be doing next week. Yes, and never fear, Jose, don't worry. We're gonna get to the lesser known stuff. There's lots of epi- lots of weeks in our future. Yes, we plan to, but but audience, I'm addressing you as a whole now, if there are things that we miss that you want us to address, we have other avenues of reviewing albums besides the podcast as well. We'd love to take that on too. Send us some, bombard us with album reviews. The more we'll be forced to write, and I would like to get back into writing some reviews as well. Bombard us with reviews and bombard us with suggestions. What do you like to see out of out of a music analysis? Yep, we uh, we work hard to to kind of cover different fields, and so we're always looking to feedback. So thank you for that. Um, I think this is a good place to say. Like we do every single week, and Jose said in an email, which makes me very happy. Music, music is, is life, life. And, and life is, is good. good.